genre. Season two of Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez. Today, we are beginning a brand new miniseries on a brand new season of Franchiseography on the Jurassic Park franchise. And uh, we're starting with the 1993 film uh, that was an adaptation of Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park. And we have a guest joining us to talk about theme parks, chaos theory, and dino DNA is Kaiju fanboy, Mark Ibarra. Is that Welcome, my Mark. label now? Hello. Thank you <laughs> for inviting me on to talk about dinosaurs. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, we had to represent the Kaiju, the Kaiju uh, contingent of uh, Jurassic Park fans, because obviously it's a, it's a major influence on this movie. Yes. Um, is all of the uh, the, kai- the the kaiju films of the 50s yeah. 60s etc if you like monster movies you like dinosaur movies and that's this movie is like hey look there's rampaging dinosaurs and then especially the second one they put it in a city and it was like this has an homage to Godzilla like straight out of the the last scene absolutely um so Jurassic Park um, I think I'm like, I'm really thinking back on all of the movies that we've covered on this show at this point. And I think this is the most sort of pop culturally understood absolute banger of a classic that we have covered on the show. Um, and as a result, my research is mostly on the development of the film rather than the making of the film because i think for the most part the making of the film is pretty well trodden ground that everybody is kind of aware of i mean throw a rock and you can find a behind the scenes feature about the making of jurassic park whether it's um uh the movies that made us did an episode on jurassic park or you know there there's a feature length documentary on on every copy of like the blu-ray and and yeah. 4k <laughs> edition um so there's a lot of stuff so like you know things like the t-rex shaking because it was full of water you know we're not going to really talk about that because again you can just watch those documentaries i'm not going to just like reiterate yeah. what you could watch in a documentary so i tried Did to Phil find stuff that, ever like, get in yeah, trouble the- for letting all those dinosaurs out <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah phil 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 Tippett being a dino supervisor um you know all that all that good stuff um but i do want to talk about before we get into the development of jurassic park 
um, from novel to the big screen. Yes. Uh, let's talk about our background with Jurassic Park. Um, and I guess, you know, for Martin, Mark's case, the franchise as a whole, um, I think Nick and I will be uh, parsing out our individual stories over the course of the miniseries. But let's start with you, Mark. When was the first time that you saw Jurassic Park? And what is your association, I guess, with the franchise as a whole? <laughs> well, um, I, I, my mother says she took me to see it in theaters when it came out. So I, I, I was there in a theater to see it. I don't remember it, but I did watch it a lot as a kid. Um, and now I How tend old to, would you have been? I was like freshly born, maybe a year old. I think it was a year old at that time. Um, mm. And then like owning it on VHS, it was just watching it all the time. So, um, but technically that was the first movie I was taken to see in a theater was Jurassic Park. Um, so maybe that imprinted on me hearing dinosaur noises as a, as a toddler, you know, there's M- much like the dinosaurs imprinted on John Hammond's himself. Exactly. There you go. Uh, so, <laughs> and my relationship now, uh, is that I worked at Jurassic Park. <laughs> I worked there for, uh, two years is where I met my partner and she worked there for, much longer than I did. She was a vet tech at the Discovery Center nursery, so she hatched a bunch of dinosaurs there. Uh, and she this even... is Universal Silence of Adventure. No, this is real life. Done. I worked there. <laughs> no, we. I. I was. Yeah, I worked. Uh, yeah, I was in the dispatch sending the boats. You know, it was a oh. real. It was a real occupation that I had there. Um, yeah, so I worked at uh, Islands of Adventure there for quite a bit. And uh, she got Ian, uh, Ian Malcolm. She got Jeff Goldblum to name a dinosaur there once. Uh, and wow. he decided to name the raptor Lincoln, which I think is a pretty cool girl's name. So uh, <laughs> uh, we have that birth certificate here in our office. And yeah, my whole uh, house and especially my computer room that I'm recording in right now has a bunch of photographs and certificates from when we worked at Jurassic Park and that it's been a real imprint on my life for sure. <laughs> the franchise is great. I, I enjoy the movies. Um, yeah. Om- almost all of them. No, I do love almost all of them. All of them? The second one oh. is my favorite one um, to be wow. completely honest. I, I love the second book. I think the second, okay. Correction. The second movie's soundtrack is my favorite. The Lost World oh. soundtrack. I like that one a lot. I think it's fantastic. I'll have to listen out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the soundtrack, now that you bring it up, because like one of the things that I think that um, we forget to bring up a lot on this show is the the scores of these mm-hmm. films. And um, I don't, I think now that you brought it up and it's a topic of discussion, I want to make sure that we bring it up before we forget again. Um, the score to Jurassic Park is so unbelievably iconic yeah um and and you know that's it, it sort of like goes without saying at this point but it is really interesting i was like thinking about the jurassic world scores which are uh, michael giacchino and what i think is interesting is like i don't know that scores are particularly iconic as much as they used to be like, they're still hummable. And every once in a while you get like something that like hits, like I think 
the most iconic score that Michael Giacchino probably ever did was Incredibles, I would imagine. I, I, I can't think of a better score yeah, of his. Yeah. I mean, his scores are really good. But like a lot of them are like riffing. He's riffing on like other people's like scores. If, if you were to stand outside of a grocery store with like an i like an iPhone, right? And like and you and you just play like five seconds of the Incredibles score. Yeah, I bet like five out of ten people would be like, "Oh, is that the Incredibles?" Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um. And so I don't think there's anything iconic about his Jurassic World scores. It's really just like he's maintaining the mood. That was set by John Williams, right? It's kind of what he does as like a, a composer almost all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I was just thinking about, I was thinking about that and I was like, wow, you know, we don't, we don't get a lot of like really iconic scores anymore. And even a lot of composers aren't doing those kinds of scores. And like, I think of like the Incredibles and then I can think of the Avengers theme that are, that's like a pretty iconic theme. At this point, Wonder Woman, arguably, right? Wonder Woman, absolutely. Um, and but it's there's not as many, and even John Williams and and you know Danny Elfman, who I I sort of put as like the next gen John Williams, even though they were sort of um, working at the same time as each other. Um, you know, they even for them, their last iconic scores were in the early two thousands. You know, like Danny Elfman with um, Spider-Man, I would say, arguably. Mm-hmm. And, and I looked over his filmography and I was like, yeah, like, <laughs> like, it's not like any of these scores are necessarily bad after after Spider-Man, but none of them are like iconic, I would say. Um, and then the same thing with John Williams. I think the last thing that he did was Harry Potter. That was like really, really notable. And it's like, yeah, the scores for the Star Wars sequels are very good. But I don't know that I would elevate them to like iconic territory. And again, much like Giacchino, he's sort of riffing on what he's done before. He never like had like a um uh uh like a Phantom Menace uh Duel of the Fates yes. style, like massive, like, you know, breakout hit out of those out of those uh out of the sequel trilogy. Nick and I um, were just talking about uh James Horner for Avatar. And mm. James Horner has has made some prolific uh, scores for movies. Uh, when you when you consider all the James Cameron films as well, like uh, some of the Titanic, yeah. you just hear those opening notes, yeah, yeah. and you're like, oh, you're yeah, just Titanic. reminded, like, oh yeah, that's from that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we 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 uh, we gave Hans Zimmer a lot of love for uh, his work in the Pirates movies a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a fair amount of people would probably recognize that you know classic pirates motif that they play at the end of every movie yeah that was still early 2000s though you know mm-hmm. um and even Hans zimmer as you go along like you could say like oh the dark knight is a pretty iconic score right but then he did a bunch of other scores that were like just sort of people being like yeah can you just do what you did on the dark knight and he's like all right and you know and then i think that kind of watered down the dark knight in a lot of ways in terms of like the score of of the Dark Knight being this iconic thing, and now it's just sort of just feels like Hans Zimmer to me, and that's what makes Pirates stick out now because Pirates is such an orchestral like big adventure score, which is like not really what Hans Zimmer is known for anymore. But um, anyway, it's just interesting. I don't know the 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 iconography of music is very interesting to me. Um, what sort of? I also think that it's like the things that make scores iconic 
are bringing back a theme over and over and over again and making it stick in the person's head. And so like here we have like that Jurassic Park theme that like pops up over and over again. I think it plays like four times throughout the course of the movie, um, which in a two hour movie is like a lot, you know, playing the same theme over and over again is a lot. Um, And I think that's what makes those scores really iconic. And I don't think directors are doing that anymore um as much like letting a theme like recur in a movie as much you know and to relate it to to monster movies and such you know um of course godzilla also has like the iconic music as well yeah. by akira ikube yeah and uh masaru sato also did some as well but most people know akira's music right and that as well brings those themes and motifs over and over again and there's like maybe four or five different motifs, different songs that come back in to let you know, like, okay, this is like uh, this type of scene or this one and uh, Jurassic Park and really all the music that John Williams did in that kind of era of Amblin Entertainment where it was E.T. and Jurassic Park. It's all John Williams, but he knows what the directors are asking for, Steven Spielberg is asking for to make it feel like et or to make it feel like you're on this costa rican island for jurassic park especially when you hear like the bongos and all these other type of little instruments that you kind of get the rhythm for even though it's not the jurassic park fanfare that's like blasting at you throughout it you're feeling what john williams wants you or what steven spielberg is asking for and john williams is like okay i know how to make this feel like as iconic as it needs to be. And he just, he knows how to dial into that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think speaking to, so watching, watching this movie, which came out in 93, it also reminded me a lot of a few weeks ago, I I got the, I got the chance to see screen or not screen speed on the big screen Mm. at, at the new Bev in LA. And it is just speed. And this are both viscerally entertaining. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. They they are there to show the audience a good time and take them on a ride and ultimately leave, wanting to leave them. They want to leave the theater feeling exhilarated. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like a nexus point now that we're we're kind of starting to recover from or we could be shifting from now in 2022 where movies stop trying to be aspirational or big mm-hmm. or like calling attention to the fact that you're watching a movie mm-hmm. like you know, close up of an actor saying welcome to Jurassic Park, right, is not trying to be cool or not trying to be immersive or reality breaking. Right. And somewhere along the line, I've seen so many documentaries or watched so many features of filmmakers trying to say, well, we don't want to break the reality. We don't want the audience to feel like they're watching a movie. We want them to feel like this is actually happening. So it has to look like reality and the characters have to talk like people actually talk and they can't say iconic lines and we can't have Jeff Goldblum looking like an oil painting, you know, <laughs> shirtless, because that might call attention to the fact that you're watching a movie. Yeah. We can't have and, things like the guy at the beginning who finds the the rock of amber with the mosquito in it and has everyone huddle up. And like oh, they, I love that. And, moment and they, so he just much. holds it up and it's just this po this extremely <laughs> posed thing where everyone stops what they're doing and just yeah. like bows before like it feels like they're all bowing before. They're all yeah, taking a like, knee before the, the amber rock, 
you know he's like muchachos yeah. and everyone it's like west side story they all like huddle <laughs> yeah. behind him and yeah. look up at the amber and you're like yeah it makes no i had i never clocked that because you know i grew up watching this movie when i was like you know three yeah so i never yeah. questioned it but yeah now it's i love it now but it, it's very cinematic because they're it, rushing towards the camera right yeah and you know who really made me appreciate stuff like that was Seth MacFarlane, of all people. Because when I used to watch, like, Family Guy or, uh, like, he would do those, like, musical escapade episodes. Mm-hmm. And he would, like, mimic Logan's run or he would do those bits. Like, any cutaway that was, like, referencing a movie um, or even his own movies, like A Million Ways to Die in the West or something like that. There were times where Seth MacFarlane would like do like kind of mimic those moments of Hollywood. And to me, it was always like, oh, that's like so iconic. Like it's and as growing up and like just watching that, it was never like laughing at it was like enjoying it or appreciating it. And then he put his comedic spin on it. But yeah, it was something that he knew he could do in Family Guy. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's that's harkening back to how good those moments are and how like his love for Hollywood, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back to what you were saying, Nick though, about, about the sort of like not being aware, like not wanting to be aware that you're watching a movie and instead just like (laughs) watching events unfold through a camera that happens to be like, I don't know, a documentary or whatever. Right, which is like legit what like Joss Whedon wanted Age of Ultron to look like for some reason. Yeah, for some stupid reason. Uh, I, I, I. Uh, but, but, but speaking of the MCU, we mm-hmm. just had a bunch of people, and this I think that this this goes along with with a few other filmmakers. But we just had Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness come out, and people were like, "This movie sucks. It's so mm-hmm. cheesy. Why is he moving the camera like that? Why are they doing this?" That would never happen. This would never happen. It's like, why are they saying catchphrases? Yeah, I got news for you guys. None of this shit would ever happen because it's a fucking movie and it's not real. Like, and it, it was, it's maddening watching these people have this, this visceral reaction to fictional characters doing fictional things and being like, that's not real. And it's like, yeah, well, you know no, no shit. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is um, I've been thinking about this, and this is totally anecdotal, but um, my nephew, my younger nephew, big MCU fan, mm-hmm. uh, he's like a freshman in high school, well, sophomore by the by the time this, this airs, mm-hmm. and uh, he did not like Doctor Strange. Okay. Yeah. Wasn't into it. Much, really, but he, he was like, Batman was way better. <laughs> And there's no comparison, also, but sure. Yeah. Well, they, well, they're two superheroes that just came out and he's in high school. Sure. So. Sure. That's what they do. <laughs> That's what they that. do. And so, but, and then I was listening to a, a podcast where the, the, the guest was like, I'm a high school teacher. And so every Monday I try to like get my students like, Hey, what did you think this weekend of the movie? Blah, blah, blah. And they all hated it too. Uh-huh. They were like, that sucked. And when are you at your most averse to corniness and earnestness? Oh, and yeah. cheesiness when you're a teenager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. that is why teens cling so heavily to the MCU movies is because they also have that kind of like, oh, big guy in space, whatever, like crank up the tunes, you know? Sure. Sure. But there's also, I think, I think, I actually think Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness is like twofold because you also have people who are averse to like being aware that you're watching a movie. And so they don't like things like Thor Ragnarok. They don't like the guardians movies, you know, 
because they're too they like they like break the story too much for them you know well like you know it was when in the 2000s you know after this movie and like leading into like the 10s we started living in like that team america Mm -hmm. era where we called attention to the montages Mm -hmm. and the tropes that we Mm -hmm. were always aware of Mm -hmm. and we identified but then we kind of fell into the pattern of like harping on it and harpooning it and stuff like family guy and like Mm-hmm. And so I think we just became so much more aware of stuff that when we come to the 2000s and we have Tony Stark, you know, never letting anything ridiculous slide and go unremarked upon. Right. It was kind of like where we were at at that point. Right. Right. It was my biggest, um, I guess, argument for the uh sort of uh 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 like i you know for for giving spider-man 3 another look is that mm-hmm. like when i did spider-man minute and did that season of spider-man minute it was that like i think that the problem with this movie yes it has story problems and it's and it's certainly the lesser of the three raimi spider-man films however mm-hmm. it is not as bad as everyone says it is it is not that much lower quality wise than the other two. It's just that when it came out in 2007, we were post Batman Begins and the world of movie watching was completely different and people didn't want something that was earnest. They didn't want something that was like fun and earnest and whatever. They wanted gritty and real and wanted things to look like a docu- like it was shot like a documentary not something that looked and felt like a movie movie. Um, and, and, and with Jurassic... Yeah. And with Jurassic Park, you don't get more escapist than Steven Spielberg wants you to... If you go buy a ticket to this movie, you're going to see dinosaurs come to life. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is... Like, that's... I mean, we, we brought up... Uh, well, this was off, 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 uh, off mic, but we brought up Superman earlier. And, like, this movie was... Had an equivalent marketing campaign to you will believe a man can fly right and everyone's like i gotta go see this i'm gonna go see a man fly (laughs) be superman this is gonna be crazy this is the same thing you're gonna believe the dinosaurs could exist you know like mark like your your mom it was your was your mom like took you to go see this movie when you were a baby yes some part of her in the 90s was like yeah dinosaurs we're gonna see dinosaurs exist like who wouldn't want to see that for two hours yeah like to see yeah to see dinosaurs and and to you know growing up and seeing that was like oh those have to be real because i don't i don't understand movie magic and i think that's the other problem is like people start tearing apart movies real quick Mm -hmm. uh nowadays instead of just being like this is a movie with dinosaurs right there's a new one that comes out jurassic world dominion will come out and people will start taking it apart very quickly. And it's it's strange that we can't just enjoy the movie mm-hmm. for what it aims to be, which is a movie that has dinosaurs in it. And uh, the Michael Crichton, like obviously that kind of underlying tone and themes and motives that we, we want to discuss in those type of stories. But yeah, like when you think of Jurassic Park or Avatar really, those movies, man, I have to get off social media because people be talking a whole lot of nothing mm-hmm. that matters in in a in the context of this. Because like if this movie were to come, well, I can't say if it came out today because obviously Dominion is coming out. But yeah, like 
there people weren't tearing this movie apart back then like people do now mm-hmm. and well, that's what we need to get back to right but you know in in one thing watching this movie thematic because it's more than dinosaurs come to life it is that that is the movie soul but also in terms of structure in terms of skill in terms of craftsmanship this movie is a ferrari yeah yes it, it is yeah. gorgeous it is like like Leonardo DiCaprio as Howard Hughes sliding his hand across the chassis of an airplane looking for a line yes. and it's not there. <laughs> yes. And this movie takes ev- almost every big Hollywood movie I've seen in the last 10 years to school. Yeah. In terms of competency and composition of shot. I I rewound the most random parts of this movie because I was like, he's what he's doing with the camera is so pimp that yeah. he's he's letting you know what's important, even though you're not consciously registering it yeah you know yeah yeah he's just fluent in cinema the movie is so good and so perfectly executed that there is a massive massive (laughs) continuity uh uh continuity mistake in this movie that no one notices it unless you point it out and then they're like how did i never notice that And it's like because the movie's fucking great that's how you never yes. notice it um, that's why yeah. yeah and it's and it's the it, it's of course it's the moment that the t-rex walks out of his enclosure and he's apparently floating on trees because that's a giant cliff um <laughs> yes uh, you, oh mark and your to, to your point that is the thing that would probably be the big talking point yeah this movie yeah like yeah you would see that on social media and be like I guess you know, this movie like, sucks. Oh, now. this movie, yeah. Oh, this movie won an Oscar for best visual effects, and they'd show this trench scene. Right? Yeah, and they'd be like, then what is go, this? Where's the T Rex standing? And it's like, it doesn't yeah. matter, man. It's vibes. It's like, like, let it. Happen. Therefore, it's a bad it's movie. Like, it's like, have you seen that? Have you seen that clip of Raiders where the car drives up and Belloc is literally a broom with a hat? <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. And you're like, well, you couldn't pause movies back then, so like, no one who would notice. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um uh Nick, what what is your do you, what do you remember watching this for the first time or was this sort of like just always a part of your life, one of those movies? Yeah. This was definitely just always a part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um my, you know, my parents growing up in the 90s, they had like, you know, like maybe four or five VHS tapes mm-hmm. and this was in that rotation where I just watched this on a loop mm-hmm. and memorized it in a way that I I can never memorize a, another movie again. Like where every line delivery sound effects are ingrained in my memory. Uh, like, and, and so this movie kind of taught me how to watch movies mm-hmm. and it's like I had, but I also don't revisit it a lot. So like, I can't, I think the last time I saw this might have been 10 years ago. Um, wow. They re-released it in theaters in 3d. Yeah. And yeah. my roommate at the time hadn't seen it ever. And so I saw it. And that was my first time seeing it in the theater. Wow. This was the first movie I saw after the pandemic in theaters again. Because mm-hmm. Universal was like, hey, we have all these empty theaters at CityWalk. And uh, we're just going to start showing classic movies again. And so literally a year ago, last year, they showed Jurassic Park in theaters. And I got to see it in theaters again. Nice. One experience, I tell you. That's that's so funny because you you were like, yeah, they were they like you know they showed at the AMC at City Walk, and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, they did, and I just realized like we're talking about two different City Walks, the other city two walk. totally My different city coasts. Walk. You guys have a City Walk. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you know, for me, um, I saw this in theaters. My dad took me. It was uh, 
you know, I used to spend summers with my dad and he would take me to like all of these movies. And I saw this as a double feature with the last action hero. Uh, Cause they opened the wow. same, they opened the same weekend and last action hero got like just yeah, wrecked, absolutely yeah. wrecked by Jurassic park um, and never recovered. Uh, it was sort of a very famous bomb, but I saw both of these movies in theaters the same like Saturday afternoon. Um, and they were both to me, these, they're, they're always going to be associated in my mind and they're just like magic to me, um, watching Mm -hmm. both of these, you know, in the case of last action hero, literal magic. And in in the case of, of this, like, uh, 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 movie magic, but, um, this was huge. And I remember I was just scared out of my mind. Um, and I think we saw last action hero first, because I don't think my dad had plans to do a double feature Jurassic park. The showing of Jurassic park we were going to was sold out. And so he bought tickets for one, like three hours later. And then we watched last action hero, which had lots of seats available. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So we watched last action hero and I was like, wow, that's amazing. And now I'm going to go see a movie about dinosaurs. Cool. So then we watched Jurassic park and I was like, I, I absolutely scared shitless. Um, the, I, I, I'm really interested. What can you remember? What part really scared you back then? The lawyer getting eaten on the toilet. Okay. Mm, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. was, and I honestly, I had this weird. There was like this, <laughs> this weird thing, and maybe like other kids around my age um, can remember this. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of like horror for kids related yes. to toilets around mm-hmm. this time. Uh, critters where, yeah critters uh look who's talking to where the with the talking toilet i want to eat your pee pee like that that <laughs> thing um scared the shit out of me when i was a kid sure um and uh, uh uh zeke the plumber on salute your shorts um one of the most terrifying characters to ever it, be yeah. in a kid's show ever mm-hmm. um and then that would be your it monster i'm convinced oh yeah <laughs> your Pennywise would, yeah. <laughs> yeah i think so um and uh and oh, then this wow. scene in in jurassic park i was just i went to the bathroom with the door open for probably like two years after this like a- this period of time era of- yeah this like period of time was like of the of the early 90s that was like oh i'm 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 going to the bathroom with the door open everybody sorry that's just going to be something you have to deal with because i can't i'm freaked out (laughs) so you so mark or no please i was gonna say were you ever scared when it was like storming at night and you just feel like there's a t-rex out there somewhere no it has to be no no no, that i would always think that was never like that for me that's like the atmosphere right like it's yeah it's night it's thunderstorming you're like you hear thunder and you're like, that's gotta be a T-Rex stomping outside like my window or something like <laughs> no, that. No, So I was, I, I was like weirdly not like scared of that because I wasn't at Jurassic park and lost world hadn't come out yet. So like the mm. idea of like a dinosaur being like in a neighborhood was not a thing yeah. that was like part As a of kid, my imagination. Yeah. You create these little fail safes. Well, no jaws happened on the beach. I'm not on the beach. Yes. <laughs> or this was, that was in the past. So that right. jaws okay. scares me more than this movie. Yeah. Man. Well, I, I was going to ask Mark, you know, this was such a big movie for you and, you know, inspired you to go, you know, work at like the theme park was, was did this movie ever scare you? Did this movie ever like creep you out? No, the ride scares me mm. to this okay. day. The man, you, you want to get scared 
<laughs> you go visit that ride at night, like because we would have to do evac training, and it, it's it has that uh, that animatronic phobia that you you get from from being in there because those those dinosaurs do not stop moving. They like they have that whole Five Nights at Freddy's thing going on where it's mm. like. Why is that thing still moving around like that? So, oh, and that's kind of eerie. The idea that even when you're not there, the Spinosaurus or whatever is still yeah. moving and still like talking yeah. to nobody. <laughs> yeah, the Dilophosaurus, they still kind of bob and weave. And then there's like a raptor in like a electric fence and it's still like right. doing its thing. Well, and you're like, there. no, I'm good. I need to get out of <laughs> here. Because it has the lights, like the red uh, klaxon alarms are still swirling mm-hmm. and the water still pumping out of the broken wall and T-Rex is just there kind of like in the shadows and you're like, I need to get out of here. I I don't want to be up here anymore. Because <laughs> yeah, wow. they're only you take an elevator up there and then you sit in a booth, you watch the boats come down in case there's any emergencies and then like your only way down is the elevator, which sometimes it breaks and you have to call the fire department and get you out of there. But anyways... Um, uh, my partner was uh, in that, we call it the spillway position. And there was a time where she was in that spillway position. And she was hearing like the sound of crunching metal. And she would keep looking at Tiffany, which is the name of the T-Rex. And she'd be like, Tiffany is looking kind of weird. And you hear that crunching metal. And here comes a boat with just two people in it. And then you see Tiffany like bowing down lower and lower. And then you realize that Tiffany is actually breaking and falling down the ride track so she e-stops it saves these two people and then you see tiffany just collapse down the chute and it's like oh my god and so like the team was watching the video like the next day like oh tiffany just collapsed it was so it's a lot of this stuff is like no this is terrifying oh my god (laughs) Um, yeah so well that could happen Well, and that's and so that's the other thing with this movie is like, yeah, like the dinosaur thing was um, really cool. And I mean, like dinosaurs in the 90s, like that was there were like two major like things that people were like really into in the 90s. Every mm-hmm. kid loved dinosaurs. And mm-hmm. once you got a like t- like teenager in your 20s, you were like really into aliens like aliens right. were like all the rage in the 90s um x files yeah because of yeah the, well, the x files was like a response to that in a certain mm. uh, way but you had like alien autopsy and you had beyond belief and you had um you know independence day men in black etc cetera, etc cetera. we covered a little bit of that when we did men in black last season i was gonna say like a movie that kind of feels like it's in the shadow definitely not last action hero but uh congo it was 1995, only sure. two years after this movie. Another Michael, another Michael Crichton. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you would think that they were probably like, hey, that Jurassic Park movie was really good. What other books you got we can do? And he was like, uh, how about this one about angry, missing link Gorillas. baboon creatures? Yeah. Like, Why didn't you even give us the gorilla one when you had that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, Congo fell short too, right? I mean, I, I just watched it recently and it, I think it kind of goes back to that, like, this is a fun adventure movie in a weird Congo way. Congo does have one, no, two marks on it that, it does have two advantages to it that Jurassic Park does not. It features both Tim Curry and Bruce Campbell. Yeah. True. Yes, it does. That's true. Congo, maybe Congo is our franchise potential for this miniseries. Um, wow. Might be a good, good, good choice. I was thinking Sphere, 
because that's the other like movie. Sphere's the other one. That's the other yep. Michael Crichton movie that like I most associate as a Michael Crichton movie is Sphere. I've never seen Sphere. Um, or maybe we just hit up a double feature and just talk about Michael Crichton movies. Um, yeah. Right. Westworld. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, uh, yes. wait. Did we already oh. talk about Westworld for something? Yeah, we, we did on, on, uh, uh, for, um, for, uh, oh, Hot Cornetto. Yeah. Cause androids. Yeah. It's on, it's on the Patreon. Us talking about, um, yeah. Westworld. Um, <laughs> so, uh, okay. So, so let's, oh yeah. And then that's the other thing too. It's just like me being a big theme park kid, like loving theme mm-hmm. parks, but not getting to go see, go to theme parks outside of visiting my dad every summer um jurassic park was like my lifeline like it was the thing like if i was like feeling theme park moods because you couldn't just like pop on youtube and watch ride throughs or anything like that so like all i had was jurassic park to get my like theme park fix and so i watched this movie i mean hundreds of times as a kid absolutely so good so so your love of theme parks predates jurassic park but it was enhanced by jurassic absolutely Hundred percent, Mark. Would you say it's kind of the reverse or something similar? Hands Do you have like hands. a love for theme parks, or is it mostly just Jurassic Park? <laughs> Who me? Oh, I love yeah. theme parks. Yeah, okay. I, I'm going tomorrow to another theme park. <laughs> I go to theme parks a lot. I I enjoy it. Yeah, I really do. I I enjoy uh the immersive part. You know, mm-hmm. like Jurassic Park was was that for me. Like to find out that Jurassic Park was being realized. Jurassic Park was to me what a lot of people felt Harry Potter was when it was realized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure MCU fans have the Academy complex or whatever they, they have nowadays. Universal yeah. still does it better, but okay. It, it's a real magical, whimsical uh, military base. Oh, yeah. speaking of MCU, <laughs> I do have something they might enjoy. Tomorrow, I'm going to Epcot. They have a Guardians ride mm-hmm. there, Cosmic Rewind. Right. Yeah. So we'll see what that is all about. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to ride that at some point in like 2024 or whatever. Whenever I finally you make guys it to come here, <laughs> bring Nick with you, uh, and we'll go to Disney and we'll take Nick on the wow. Avatar Pandora area. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I'd have to conquer my fear of going to Florida, but <laughs> Avatar might be worth it. I don't blame you for that one bit. <laughs> Uh, I was not a theme park kid growing up. I didn't go to, I would go to Six Flags, but mostly just, that's me being a Texan. That was me being a theme park kid. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and, and I didn't go to Disneyland until Scott took me when I was in my late twenties. Yeah. But I was a massive, obsessive, irritating dinosaur kid. Mm. So you were Tim. I, I was absolutely Tim. <laughs> I was the little kid. I had those big, remember those big chunky dinosaur books with the beautiful illustrations of like a day in the life of an Apatosaurus or a day in the life of a Brachiosaur. I always had one of those tucked under my arm. I would make adults quiz me on my dinosaur knowledge. Yeah. Uh, And it was all because of this movie. And then later I would learn I didn't actually love dinosaurs or I did love dinosaurs, but what I really loved was, was movies. We yeah. talked about this on the top five, but I asked Scott what his favorite dinosaur is. So I'm gonna ask you what your favorite dinosaur is. Um, I would. I'm man. We're, we're gonna talk about it in Jurassic Park three, but the Spinosaurus. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I just. I don't know. That really hit me. I was like the perfect age for Jurassic Park three to come out. So I'm sure yeah. we'll talk about it. Um, I, I, I think too. Uh, 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 um, the. 
the popularity of dinosaurs at the time, you know, you, you just mentioned like being a dinosaur kid and like, mm-hmm. like every boy was like a dinosaur kid in the early, in like the early to mid nineties, you know, we um, had, we're back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're totally. Back. Land before time. Um, was not a fan of the Jim Henson one at the time. Dinosaurs? Dinosaurs. The Dinosaurs. Yeah. 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 Didn't, didn't like those guys. Yeah. It was I did, Prehistoria. I did show. Um, not the baby. Uh, or not the mama. Yeah. I'm the baby. Not the mama. Me, you know. Yeah. That, that was it. I'm that was the, the Yeah. Um, I, uh, uh, but, but what I think is fascinating and like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell a little, little story that is, you know, somewhat embarrassing, but I was like a little kid, but like, you know, prior to Jurassic Park, the T-Rex was like every boy's favorite dinosaur, right? I mean, that's not largely true, but you know what I mean. It was like it was like a lot of it was like kind of the de facto favorite dinosaur for a lot of He's people. He's a dinosaur's dinosaur, the yeah. T-Rex. King of the dinosaurs. <laughs> like that was what, you know, that's, yeah, that's what everybody what called him. Um and uh uh what what this movie did for the Velociraptor, a dinosaur that like most people had never heard of. Um, and granted, it's not portrayed accurately in the film. The the raptors that are in these films are a different breed of raptor. They're not the Velociraptor. But it's Veloci- all that frog DNA, Scott. Well, no, yes. but there is a raptor that does look like no, that, yeah. but it's not the Velociraptor. The, just Velociraptor <laughs> sounds yeah. fucking badass. So that's why they use that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Which but, goes back to what our conversation of like, this is a movie. We need right. to call yes. it Velociraptor. Yes. Yeah. This movie's so bad. It's so inaccurate about dinosaurs. Yeah. Like, it's like, they don't even on, have bro. feathers. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so but, the, but the thing that, um, that that is so funny is that like you go into this movie and you're like oh the T-Rex is my favorite and it, the movie uses the T-Rex in that way where it's like mm. it's the hero dinosaur in this movie yeah. and and the velociraptors are like these sort of like villain dinosaurs right but the velociraptors are so cool in this movie um, and then really cool in the Lost World as well that like mm-hmm. I remember I used to play power rangers with my friends right but Mm -hmm. because i didn't associate with any of like all my friends would like well i'm the red ranger i'm the green ranger and it's like well okay well i'm not gonna be the black ranger the blue ranger like i you know i I like him but i already am the blue ranger yeah i'm I'm the blue ranger in real life i don't want to be the blue ranger (laughs) um (laughs) while we're playing so i would invent I created a mm-hmm. ranger and my ranger was the purple power ranger and my dinosaur was the velociraptor so nice, and that's wow. all that's a straight line from Jurassic Park to me playing Power Rangers with my friends. Um and I just I just think that that's really cool thing that this movie did for a dinosaur that no one had ever really heard of at before this point. And now they're mm-hmm. like kind of like look at what they've done in the Jurassic World movies. <laughs> like they're like pets in Jurassic World. Right. Um, yeah. They found a way to like make it like cute like not well yeah yeah but i'm cute but like a, a a a protagonist instead of an adversary right right yeah um so i just I, think that that's really i cool. uh you know what else we forgot when it comes to 90s and dinosaur craze uh, i'm sure a listener has been like yelling at us about it uh land before time i said land before time oh you did say land before oh, time yeah. Oh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah i said, oh, man, I said land before time um I think maybe you guys were both talking, so you didn't hear me say it. Oh, my bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, and technically, 1989, so. But all the sequels were in the 90s. Absolutely. And those yes. were, 
Yeah. yeah the and most I, important one, the second one with Chomper. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> of course. So speaking of the 80s, let's go back to 1983 where Michael Crichton writes a screenplay um, about a grad student who recreates the dinosaur through genetics. He was very interested in genetics and he was like, what in cloning? Um, and that whole, that whole, like this brand new science that was all theoretical, but he was like, this is really interesting. I'm going to write a screenplay about somebody who clones a dinosaur. And so he writes this screenplay and the screenplay doesn't work at all because he, upon Michael Crichton is very known for his research and he like goes and digs deep onto any topic that he's, you know, writing about um, to the point where his novels can be a little bit of a bear to read because you'll get just like a chapter that is just exposition about like the back. It's like a research paper. Um, And, uh, and so, you know, he did this with the screenplay and then realized that like, Oh, genetic research is actually extremely expensive. A grad student wouldn't just be able to recreate a dinosaur, clone a dinosaur as a grad, as a grad student. Like that's not a thing that you could do. You would need a lot of money backing it. What kind of thing would give a lot of money to recreate a dinosaur? And he's like, well, the only, you know, capitalist venture that would do that, you know, because there's no scientific reason for why you would want to <laughs> clone a dinosaur. Yeah. The only thing that idea. has, yeah, the only way it would have any value is for entertainment value. And so then he was like, oh, what if there was like a zoo or a theme park? And that's the reason why they're cloning the dinosaurs. And he he also didn't fe- he felt very strongly that Westworld, um, which he had done in the seventies, wasn't as strong in ex- in execution as he had wanted it to be. Um, he wanted to dig deeper into all of that stuff, and so he saw this dinosaur cloning theme park idea as a way of doing that. And so he starts writing Jurassic Park and. Originally, the first draft of Jurassic Park, the first entire draft of Jurassic Park um, was from the point of view of a child. And the park was open and it was a totally different story. And the um, uh, his editor was like, so this is a really good idea. Throw this out. Don't make it about a kid. Make it about adult, an adult, because you have written an adult novel from the point of view of a child. <laughs> no one is going to want to read this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, throughout the whole thing and started over and, uh, and made, um, the, the, the book that we got. Um, and so in 1989, Crichton, who was like very well known in Hollywood, um, at this point was, he met with Steven Spielberg uh, to work on a TV pitch that they were working on together for something that would eventually become ER. Um, which was created by Michael Crichton and Steven Spielberg, something that I don't think most people remember <laughs> about that show. Um, I do. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, so they were working on that pitch and he was like, you know, Steven Spielberg was like, so when can I get a draft of the pilot? He's like, well, I'm finishing up my novel. And then once I'm done with the novel, I can I can work on the the pilot. Um, for ER. And he's like, oh, what are you working on? He's like, oh, it's this story about like, 
this just these you know this billionaire who builds a theme park where they genetically clone a bunch of dinosaurs and you can see the dinosaurs in the theme park and everything goes wrong and he's like holy shit i want that (laughs) (laughs) and uh and so he was like i want that and i'm gonna do everything in my power to get it and Crichton is like, I mean, there's already like other studios are are already bidding on this. The book's not even out yet. And he's like, well, Universal and Amblin and me, we're going to team up and we're going to get this thing. Um, the other teams that were out for it, Columbia Pictures, which would then become Sony Pictures, but I don't think it was Sony at the time. Columbia Pictures had Richard Donner attached and were trying to hmm. buy Jurassic Park. Wow. 20th Century Fox had Joe Dante attached to get Jurassic Park. Warner Brothers had Tim Burton attached and wanted to get Jurassic Park. And then finally, Universal entered the ring with Steven Spielberg and won the day when they gave, um, they, they came up with a, everyone was pitching one and a half million dollars um, as, the, as the number. To, to buy the rights to Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. But Universal came in swinging by saying, we'll give you a hundred, one and a half million dollars and also another 500,000 on top of that to write the first draft of the screenplay. And Michael Crichton was like, done and done. Two million dollar deal for <laughs> Jurassic Park. Um, Man. Huge, huge. And this was like, you know, this was like back in the day in the 90s when they were spending sure. oodles of money on, on, on development. Um, money they don't spend anymore. Um, but, uh, it is interesting to think about Richard Donner and Joe Dante and Tim Burton directing Jurassic Park, because I can picture all of their versions of this movie. I think, yes, I think Richard Donner in particular, I feel like is going, it would have been very similar to the movie that we got. I think, um, I think it probably would have been a little more Crichton-y, a little more capitalist a little more mean the way that the novel mm-hmm. is um but maybe I, not I, as much of the, the sweeping wonder and romance but of, i think there's a little bit gonna be a, a little bit of that because look at superman the movie ton of right that, you know lethal weapon right right like i think there would have been a lot more of that that lethal weapon energy but like this movie kind of has that every once in a while um the goonies yeah the goonies, goonies with the kids you can see it like you can see that mm. movie it makes sense <laughs> Um, I think Joe, Joe Dante, you've got the, yeah, the chaotic gremlins energy, right? I think yeah. Joe, with Joe Dante, I think that's absolutely what you would have gotten was a little bit more, um, of like a wacky monster movie. Uh, and then Tim Burton, I think would have been a, a total throwback to like Harryhausen. I think that's what that would have been. Yeah. Um, uh, so obviously, you know, I think we've made out with the best possible version of Jurassic Park. However, I am fascinated to think about like what those versions of that mo- of right. this movie would have been because who even knows if either of the, any of those filmmakers were as interested in pushing the limit technically mm-hmm. the way Spielberg was mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of other effects heavy movies at the time like creature effect heavy movies at the time like I don't know like what year was batteries not included or like Theodore Rex and stuff like that you yeah know? Wow. Theodore Rex I think was after this. <laughs> Um, Batteries Not Included, I want to say, was like 87. I think Batteries Not Included was like right around like Cocoon era, like that sort of thing. Um, But uh, yeah, it definitely would have been stop motion, I think, with with every other case except for Spielberg, um, who wasn't afraid to like push the envelope with the CGI and everything. 
Yeah, because I was thinking like Stan Winston would be under Amblin Entertainment, right? Or is that an outside? Because he's within that that production company. Yeah, but I think Universal. Stan Winston. Stan Winston works on worked on Gremlins too. So okay, he has worked with Dante before. Um, I don't know who what special effects people worked with Richard Donner like on Goonies. Um, but uh, and then Tim Burton. I think Tim Burton is Rick Baker mostly, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, he's worked with Rick Baker quite a few. Because Rick Baker did the Planet of the Apes with him, right? That was Rick Baker's yeah. work? Yes, it was a yes. 2001. Yes, Rick Baker. Rick yeah. Baker, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Planet um, of the Apes. So, yeah. And also, when I think about, you know, imagining Steven Spielberg, like, reading the story or hearing the story, there is such a, and I, I can't be the first person to say this, but there's such a through line between... Spielberg and the character of John Hammond in this movie mm-hmm. of this kind of child at heart, like millionaire on top of the with the world in his hand that just wants to bring joy to people and make them believe that something crazy can happen or something unbelievable can happen. But then kind of exploring, you know, it has Hammond cuts corners. I don't think Spielberg does. Right. Um, right. Yeah. The, the hubris of, of John Hammond, even though he, mm has these good intentions as they call it right right because this is 90 spielberg this is like spielberg post fatherhood and kind of kind of reigning in the chaos and anarchy that you saw in movies like temple of doom or poltergeist right right um yeah so post hook um which was his his previous film Mm -hmm. uh spielberg was ready to make schindler's list and the problem with Schindler's List was that no one wanted to make it because Spielberg hadn't really successfully made a film in that oeuvre yet, right? Yeah. He had done Color Purple. He even Purple. kind of saw this as like, yeah, like an adult. I want to make an adult movie. Right. He had done Color Purple, which was, was, was successful, but like not like a lot of people creatively were like, eh. Um, and like, you know, maybe you weren't the person to make that and also, eh. Um, and then you had um, the Christian Bale one. Uh, Empire of the Sun. Empire of the Sun, which I always forget about. Um, but uh, Empire of the Sun, which again, I don't think, I don't think that was a huge hit or anything. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty forgotten Spielberg movie. And so he wanted to do Schindler's List, but everyone was like iffy about it because he wanted it to be black and white. And he, you know, he wanted to do all these things. And they're like, that sounds like a one-way ticket to bomb town. Um, I don't <laughs> think we want to do this. And everyone was sort of turning him down for Schindler's List, except for Sid Sheinberg, who said, I will greenlit, I will greenlight Schindler's List under one condition. You make Jurassic Park first. Uh, Because, quite frankly, I think Schindler's List is going to break you a little bit. And I need fun, loving, you know, big child energy guy directing this movie mm-hmm. and post on this movie is probably going to be a nightmare. So maybe do this first and then go do Schindler's list. Um, but I will green light both movies right now. So Spielberg agreed, um, goes and does um, Jurassic park uh, in doing that. Um, you know, Michael Crichton turns in his draft of the script, uh, which he says accounts for about 20 to 30% of the novel. Um, you know, having to cut out all of his novelistic, you know, background on every character and everything 
um, was like, oh yeah, this is like 20 or 30. This is like a trimmed down, like a, like a Cliff's Notes version of the novel. Mm-hmm. And uh, Spielberg was like, great, you're fired. Um, we're moving on. And so he gave the script to the writer of, of Hook, uh, Malia Scotch Marmo, who wrote a draft where he was like, I need you to like simplify this because right now it's way too complicated. There's way too much exposition. Simplify this, make it something that kids would enjoy. So, so they take a, they take a, a crack at the script and they actually merge Ian and Grant into a single character in this version of the script um, and change a lot about the characters and the dynamics and the story and uh, turn it in. And he was like, okay, well now it's a movie that like adults wouldn't want to watch. So <laughs> no, thank you. Um, we're going to, we're going to, who, who else do we have? And so. Um, the studio suggested David Kep, who was like a new up and coming writer at the time and was like, yeah, let's have him do a crack. And so David Kep reads the Marmo draft, throws it out completely, and then does a second draft, a second, second draft off of the Crichton draft, um, where he basically dumped 90% of the exposition of the movie into a single scene, um, which is, of course, the, the ride through with Mr. DNA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and he, he, he and, and Spielberg like thought of this as like, oh, what if we just, this is a theme park. Uh, when you go to a theme park and ride rides, you get all this exposition in the, in the opening video and like the pre-ride video. So what if we just show the pre-ride video and we let that be all of the exposition we need? And so they figured it out. And that's, that's why there's like no exposition in this movie because they just dump it all into that single scene. Um, and it's great because it's perfect because kids get it because it's a cartoon. It's very easy to understand. I mean, it's it's unbelievable, really. It's beautiful. You yeah. don't even really appreciate as a kid the work that it's doing. Um, mm-hmm. And like, we'll we'll get into Mr. DNA, but I mean, yeah, it's more than exposition. You remember everything that he says. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much that it ties back to because like you said earlier, Nick, the movie's going to start with showing that Amber Crystal with the mosquito in it and then the ride through video says this is what we do with that mosquito and then you go oh that's why it's so important to them right. yeah because you, you had that big cool close-up of the amber so the audience is like oh that's important amber yeah. and mosquitoes are important in this movie yeah, right that's right. the gold um so <laughs> the other thing that he did was basically remove the backstories of every character um, right. so hey, that's something that you don't really notice when you're watching the movie is like, none of these characters have backstories, nothing. Right. Uh, Bad movie. <laughs> Why do I care about these characters? Yeah. I don't know anything about them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he basically, he was like, all right, I'm going to take away all of their backstory because backstory isn't character. And instead I'm going to make them all almost like cartoon characters in how exaggerated they all are. Um, in terms of like what they do and what they bring to the table and, you know, redid a lot of the characters to make them sort of, um, you know, they're caricatures. And then they're also they like complement each other in terms of like conflicting personalities and things. Yeah. Um, yeah. He wanted them to all be sort of these larger than life characters so that you instantly understand all of them, even if you don't know everything that's ever happened to them that led them to this point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, yeah, please, Mark. Oh, I was just going to say, going back to that, that second draft, um, is that to, to fuse Ian and Alan Grant into one character, I think 
that was a nice change to not do that because I think during the 90s, we're seeing a lot of action heroes. Like that fused character would become the 90s. Like, oh, Jurassic Park has like a a a hero guy in it. And Alan Grant is not that character, really. He's mm-hmm. one of the major characters, but you feel that there's a balance between all these dynamic characters or the dynamic of characters. And it's Alan Grant is not just this um, omnipotent, like protagonist. Right. 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 Um, But yeah, he added the sort of like, I call it a soft love triangle. um, Cause it's not, it's not really harped on very much in the movie. It's just sort of like vague and kind of there. Um, He also changed Ellie Sadler from being Alan's grad student. Like she is in the book uh, to, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, like his partner, basically, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> where, uh, you know, she's into botany and he's into, he's into, you know, the dinosaurs. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, yeah. So it, just things like that. Um, also switching the kids. So like in the book, um, the girl is, it's younger, uh, and the, and, and Tim is the older brother. He's into computers. She's into sports. And so they switched the ages and made him into dinosaurs and her into computers. Um, And it was just overall, I mean, really like reading this book. And he also changed Hammonds into like Santa Claus, essentially, Um, like like Santa Claus meets Walt Disney um, or or Walt Disney's persona. Uh, And I think that was a that was a huge improvement, too. But like, yeah, just overall basically took his book and the idea and the character concept of the characters and just improved every single aspect of it across the board. Um, and, uh, it was, it's, it's a really, really impressive script. And it's the reason why, you know, David kept to this day still is like one of the most in demand screenwriters in Hollywood. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so director of in- premium rush yep. movie. I love very much. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then we get into casting. So, um, both William Hurt and Harrison Ford were offered the role of Alan Grant, um, and, uh, turned it down because they were like, I don't get this. Um, and also there's not much to this guy, uh, which was again, a benefit because like you're an actor, you get to just put whatever you want into the guy and create it whole, whole cloth. But there's enough there on the page, like in moments that I think there's enough to play there. But I guess for for William Hurt and Harrison Ford, it wasn't like the way they prefer to work, I suppose. Um, And which makes sense because like William Hurt and William Hurt and Harrison Ford are kind of just William Hurt and Harrison Ford and everything they've ever been in. Um, They wouldn't it wouldn't have been Dr. Alan Grant. Yeah, right. Right. There would have because, yeah, they have like a Hollywood persona. That like I think by that by this point, certainly Harrison Ford. But I think even William Hurt was like a major star at that point. Yes. And. My understanding is to most American audiences walking into the multiplex, Sam Neill was an unfamiliar face on the big screen. Right. right. Despite yeah. the fact that he had just tested and lost um, for James Bond. Um, but he was right. neck and neck with Pierce Brosnan for the role. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's, there's actually test footage. You can find a test scene that he did of himself Ooh. as James Bond. Um, it's online and it is spectacular. <laughs> um, he would have been an incredible James Bond. Um, but imagining him in those Pierce Brosnan and James Bond movies, 
I think they went the right direction. They went the right direction. They made the right choice. (laughs) Yeah, I think they did. Um, But he he would have been a really great Bond as like a different type of Bond. Um, He was very very cool. Um, So so yeah. So they end up with uh, with with Sam Neill, um, who they cast three weeks before filming, uh, which was insane. Um, (laughs) Jim Carrey came very close to playing Ian Malcolm. Okay, uh, but uh, but ended up. um, I think. They they ended up with Jeff Goldblum because there was just an energy like obviously uh, the an Gold energy Bloom, yeah that got the Goldblum energy that just can't be recreated. There was an energy know? there. Yeah, there was just something about that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so so they went with that. Um, you you know, <laughs> I just I I whenever I think about him, there's lots of stuff that you can think about in this movie. But him, his first scene where he's just like laughing and growling in the helicopter. He comes out the gate, yeah. out the gate, weird. Yeah, it's the weirdest shit, and uh, and it's the best. It's the best. Um, Robin Wright turned the movie down, um, wow. and Gwyneth Paltrow and Helen Hunt both were. Um, they both auditioned for Ellie. Um, Helen Hunt would go on to basically play her own version of Ellie Sadler and Twister. Um, yeah, sure. Very essentially the same character in many ways, just replace tornado, replace dinosaurs for tornadoes. Um, mm. But uh, I guess, I guess Ellie's, I guess Ellie's dad wasn't killed by a T-Rex in this, but right. you know, man, B- <laughs> Bill Paxton would have played the shit out of Dr. Alan Grant. He would have, but they would, would never have, have been I'm... able to film. Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton together. <laughs> the, yeah, that's a good point. Two Mark, different helicopters had to be used. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying I to am, think I of am. a helicopter that has Harrison Ford, Jim Carrey, and like Carey. Robin Wright in it at the same time. Like that's what my mind going is. To right Jurassic now. Park. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So crazy. <laughs> um, and then finally, uh the the actor who Spielberg was adamant about for um John Hammonds was he wanted to re-team with Sean Connery. Um, mm. But the problem with it was that Sean Connery was like, I can't do the Santa Claus thing. Like, I can't do, like, the lovable, like, family guy version yeah, of this character. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you want me to do, like, that capitalist guy that's in the book, that I can pull mm. off very well. But, like, this sort of, like, fatherly Walt thing. Walt Disney, like you said. Yeah, yeah you Walt. got the most fatherly performance you could out of me in Last Crusade. <laughs> that's all I got. Like, that's the best I could do. And so um, when they tested um, uh, the actor who, who ended up playing uh, John Hammonds. What's his name? Um, Richard Attenborough. Uh, R- Richard Attenborough. Attenborough. It's one of they the were like, Oh, yeah. This <laughs> is, I always forget the first name. Yeah, this is, this is him. For sure. This is him. Um, who go would go on to play Santa Claus like a year later? Indeed, indeed, in a pretty good remake. Um, yeah, yeah, underrated. I think that movie. Um, so then, of course, you have Phil Tippett as the stop motion artist, who would then become the Dino supervisor because they didn't <laughs> want to fire him outright when they stopped the stop motion concept, and so they kept him on to like keep track of the CGI. And basically, Spielberg was like. You're going to be your job is going to be replaced by computers. And mm-hmm. I don't want to lose Phil Tippett to this mm-hmm. changeover. So I want you to stay on and I want you to be the dino supervisor. You're going to supervise the way that these dinosaurs move in CGI to make it as real as possible. And hopefully this will give you a step into a new career as like you know, a CGI guy. And that's exactly what happened with Phil Tippett, which is 
it's really cool because this, this could have been the end of Phil Tippett's career right here. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it really speaks to Spielberg's love of not just his own career, but cinema as a medium. Mm-hmm. And like this artist is too valuable to be lost to this changing of the guard. I'm going to give him the shot he needs to do stuff that I'm not going to have anything to do with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there was a um, yeah. video circling Twitter recently where it was showing the stop motion that Phil Tippett mm-hmm. was doing. It was showing him moving the T-Rex as as a stop motion. And then they would be like, okay, yeah, but this is being replaced by CGI later on. And then, right. you know, yeah. because it saved his career, I think he recently came out with a movie like maybe two years ago, which was like a creepy, like all stop motion uh, movie. Forget what mm-hmm. it was called. But, yeah, Mad God. Yeah, and it was like, oh yeah, Phil Tippett, the dinosaur supervisor, he's still still making movies, yeah. and it's yeah. because his career was pretty much saved. Right. right. It's it's really it's it's the the good version. Whatever the good version of chilling is, watching those animatronic tests of kind of like kind of like what you said about imagining the helicopter with Jim Carrey and Helen Hunt, like imagining stop motion Jurassic Park. Yeah. Um, Kind of the same deal with that Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie when you see what Stan Winston was working on before they made the switch, and you're like, "Oh, oh God, the 1994 they... Stan Winston one, yeah, yeah." It's, um, but then I'm always reminded by the 1998 one. It's, it has good practical effects in that movie as well. That are I have a lot of affection for that movie as a child of the 90s. It is uh, surprising how good those effects are. Yeah, but anyways, <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Here's something that you never hear about a movie like this. The movie wrapped on November 30th, 1992, 12 days ahead of schedule. Wow. Hmm. 12 days ahead of schedule. You think, <laughs> this movie. This movie. <laughs> do you think visual effects played a hand in that? Like, I, I, No, I think just Spielberg being like a master of his craft of both like the dude on set running things and also just like knowing exactly what he wants and how to accomplish every shot. Like, I don't think, you know, Spielberg's not known for like a billion takes of things, you know, mostly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no stories of like, God, Spielberg, would just really wanted to shoot this crazy extravagant set piece. And we lost so much time because he didn't know what he was doing. Like you never hear stories like that. No, no. And it was one of the first times that he had ever worked with animatics. So a lot of like the more complicated scenes he had already thought out in the animatics, you know, because he directed those as well. Unlike, you know, like Marvel Studios, um, where, you know, there are visual effects. People do that. Um, You know, he had welcome to directing this movie. Here are your set pieces that we've already done for you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like 50s into the movie that you're directing. Um, And and so I know that this none of this feels like you, but tough um <laughs> you're gonna get a huge you're gonna get a lot of residuals off this thing so whatever um, you guys are saying it. i'm not i'm not saying it because <laughs> <laughs> like, i've had like three movies they have like a movie coming out every six months like yeah. what else what else do oh, they yeah, yeah, you yeah. know absolutely absolutely but coming from the um, dc podcast like if i say those things oh, people yeah, are yeah, like I oh you hate these movies and Marvel or DC fanboy. Yeah. Like, listen, I don't, I'm I, not saying anything anymore. Yeah. I don't, I don't hate the movies, but you know, they're not above criticism. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so he directed all these animatics. And so he knew all of the shots that he was getting to the point where mm-hmm. he could be like in two places at once where like they're shooting this thing 
you know, some of these like close up shots and stuff like that on and they're they're moving shots that would normally be part of first unit into second unit because he's already pre-directed them in the animatics, um, wow. which is like, you know, so like a lot of this stuff was just like um, allowed him to like get it really far ahead of schedule, which is just mm-hmm. crazy. Um, yeah. Absolutely crazy. So 12 days ahead of schedule. And then the movie was so tightly shot that a rough cut of the movie was ready in five days, five days later. So the rough wow. cut of the movie was ready to screen for Universal. Basically, what is that? Seven, Se- seven days before <laughs> production was scheduled to wrap. And it's Jurassic Park. And it's Jurassic yeah. Park. <laughs> giant yeah. dinosaur animatronics. Yeah, crazy. Um, That's so, staggering. To think so about. because there was a rough cut ready, um, they moved into visual effects and all of that stuff in post, which Spielberg didn't have to do. You know, he, he couldn't get directly involved with any of that. He just would basically see stuff come back and give the thumbs up or thumbs down or, or comments or notes mm. or whatever. So he went and shot Schindler's List while this movie was in post. And he talks about this period of his life as one of the most like tonal whiplash day-to-day tonal whiplash that he's ever experienced in his entire career of like shooting really heavy Schindler's List scenes where he's breaking down and crying and having to call Robin Williams every day to like cheer him up, Um, which Robin Williams did like without, like he just would talk to him for like an hour every day after, after shooting a day of Schindler's List and just cheer him up for an hour on the phone. Um, But like, having those really heavy days and then also having to go into a trailer and be shown like shots of like dinosaur skeletons running through a field and him being like, yeah, I don't know. I guess fucking sure. I don't, none of this shit matters. I'm making Schindler's list. Um, And, and so he was like, sure that the movie was not going to be good literally until he saw the final cut. And then he saw the final cut and was like, he had wrapped on Schindler's list wrapped post on Schindler's list was that he had that movie totally behind him, saw the final cut of Jurassic park and felt like a kid again. And he was like, it was this, I made my own cure for my like (laughs) self-induced depression um, that I had given myself on Schindler's list. Uh, And he was like, it was, I, I, and so like you watch like press with him on, uh, on Jurassic park. And he's like, a bright eyed kid again because he's so <laughs> excited about the movie he made. Um, that like, you know, pre Schindler's list Spielberg made for post Schindler's list Spielberg. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. Sid Scheinberg ended up orchestrating that better than he even could have planned it. I know. I know. Um, so yeah, really, really cool. And, uh, the movie made $912 million worldwide. Um, which was the highest grossing movie of all time until uh, Titanic beat it like a few years later. Um, but, Understandable. Uh, yeah, huge. And then crossed a billion when it was re-released in theaters in 3D. Um, so. Yeah, 900 million in 1993. Yeah. Is, is a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. You know, you, you talked about, Scott, at the very beginning of the show about how like this is probably the movie we've talked about on franchiseography with the biggest reach. Yes. And it's like, yeah, this was a cultural event. Like, yes. 
everyone went to go see this and shots of this movie are ingrained into our like collective DNA now, no pun intended. Um, this is, this is Jurassic Park. If you show a close up of a, of a, of a plastic cup of water, you think dinosaurs in a theme park going yeah. crazy. I can't yeah. look at Jello the same. Green Jello. Yeah, Jello. What am yeah. I? <laughs> <laughs> um, so Absolutely. that's, that's nuts. And it makes, I mean, you know, we're, we're an hour in, we haven't even gotten into the walkthrough, but like, there's that much to talk about. Shaving you know? cream, Barbasol. You, Shaving, you yeah. can't look at that the same anymore. <laughs> I was, I was, I was watching this with my wife, Bethany this morning and you know, she is one of the bis- biggest Jurassic Park fans I've, I've ever met um, and watched it religiously as a child. Uh, and her family quotes it, quotes it constantly. Like, it's just anytime I go back to her family for like a holiday or whatever, I hear minimum like, ha- like a dozen Jurassic Park quotes while I'm there. Um, cause it's just part of their vernacular. It's like their love language is like Jurassic park quotes. Um, and watching it this morning, uh, she commented about like, Oh, you know, I think it's been a really long time since I've actually sat down and watched Jurassic park again. And so she was watching it and noticing things that she never noticed before. And one of those things was the Barbasol can, which as a kid, she always thought was whipped cream. And this time, when she sees Nedry put it on the pie, he, she had, like, a visceral reaction because she was like, oh, like, you're just like, oh, my God, I never put it together. Yeah, that but- was shaving cream. Somebody's going to eat that. That's disgusting. I ate it as a kid thinking it was whipped cream. And, oh, like, that man. movie Oh, you recognize it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like, you saw the logo and you're like, oh, that's what he had in the movie. Yeah. yeah. He put it on the pie. That must be Cool Whip in a can. <laughs> I saw it in my parents' bathroom and went, this must be whipped cream. It's not yeah. whipped cream. I'm letting you know that right now. <laughs> Are you guys old enough to remember when your teachers would have you clean off tables with shaving cream? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I haven't thought about that in a while. I know. Wow. Blast from the past. Why? I wonder if they do that anymore. Oh man, I'll ask. Ask Brian. Brian, Brian, ever make your ever make your students <laughs> yeah. clean the desk? Brian, I'm sure you're listening to this. You're going to be on the show in a few episodes. Let us know. <laughs> anyway. Oh man, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm I'm excited. I, I want to. I'm excited to hear more about like what Bethany unearthed watching this again. For the, I, yeah, because I've got one that comes up pretty early on. So so let's okay, let's cool. get into that breakdown. Um, shout out to the '90s Universal logo. Hell yeah. Yes. It just, it hits different. <laughs> it does. Yeah, I think it um, changes also, with oh, The Lost World, doesn't it? Um, mm-hmm. The guy who yeah, the scored Lost Congo. World, yeah, The Lost it. World is that, like, 90s, the 90s Universal logo that I, like, associate with movies like Lost World and Liar Liar for some yeah. reason. Where it's, I watch mo- that movie where it's moving. Yeah, yeah like it's it comes. tilting. Yeah. Dun, 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 yeah, the, the, yeah, the total, like, CGI one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, Mark, I think you mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but just like the instrumentation, the instrumental of just like the boom, like the tribal drums. Mm-hmm. It's just so I love it when a movie is like, no, you're you're watching a classic. Like, we don't have time to waste. Yeah, like, we're, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, open on Ila Nubar in Costa Rica as they're trying to do a, a transfer of a raptor f- into an enclosure. 
Yeah. And uh, we meet Muldoon. Mm -hmm. I love the close up on Muldoon. Just right away, Spielberg, like, hey, like, remember this guy. This guy's going to matter. Yeah. And like, yeah, just every sound in this scene is embedded in my memory Mm -hmm. of like, you know, shoot her and the, the Foley screams as the guy's hand is slipping under the and like he's not telling you anything, but he's telling you everything. And I think even if you're watching this at a very young age, you don't. You're understanding what's happening, even if you're not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Watching the behind the scenes for this was really interesting because this scene opens the entire like behind the scenes saga of this of this movie. And um, Spielberg is, you know, a lot of people don't know this about him, but he is very notable as a director who comes up with shit on the fly. Um, That's his style. And it's just that he's Steven Spielberg. And so the things that he comes up with on the fly are like some of the most amazing shit you've ever seen. <laughs> um, and so he he directed this entire scene. He just like came in and was like, just like point the camera here and then have him do this. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really cool. Okay, let's move it over here. And like, just that was how he directed the scene. And that energy, I bet, is how he got a lot of this stuff done so quickly, too. Because I bet this would have been like a two night shoot for like most movies, but he probably got it done right. in like half a night. Because like this is already he's already done Jaws. I swear we're not just gonna talk about this, but Jaws, Close Encounters, all three Indiana Jones movies, yep. Hook. I mean, these, these those are not easy shoots. Right. And he's like what, thirty something at this point? I think he's in his forties at this point, but yeah. Okay, forties. <clears throat> but yeah, it's like you know, just putting in the ten thousand hours, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those movies do have like those they're some of their most iconic scenes are suspense driven moments. So when you open Jurassic Park in such a scene that is suspenseful and you're kind of like as an audience member, you're like, I don't know what's going on. The movie's just started and Steven Spielberg has a way of being like, I'm showing you who to pay attention to and to pay attention to what, even though you can't see the dinosaur, you have to that's the that's what you have to f- try to focus on right now is like that's the suspense of it all it's like what is in this cage what are they bringing in what is these locks being removed for so you start hearing all these sound effects and like like you said nick like you you hear these audible cues and you're like i remember this movie by every sound bite mm-hmm. and it's like yeah that's it, he does it just mastercraft of this scene yeah the that's another thing that's really interesting about this movie. I swear we won't talk about every scene this long. Um, but <laughs> but uh, what's really interesting about this movie is like comparing it to Jaws, which Spielberg compared it a lot to Jaws. He he called he literally said like, oh, I made a sequel to Jaws. It's just on land this time. Um, and including a, an animatronic that was giving him shit. <laughs> um, and uh, but like that's the thing, right? It's like. Everyone talks about like the legend of Jaws and how like, oh, he wanted to show the shark a lot, but because the shark wasn't working, he had to work around it. And so like, you know, that's how Jaws is so suspenseful is because you don't get to see the shark very much. And people are like, it's better off for that. But then I watch this movie and I'm like, but he knows when to not show the dinosaur and when to like show the dinosaur. And I bet he would have done the same thing with Jaws. Like I bet. If he had had the opportunity to show more of Jaws, it wouldn't have been like, you're just going to see him all the time. I think he still would have been building suspense in a similar way that he builds it here. Yeah, he wouldn't just like, well, time to not be a good director because I can see the shark. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
that's interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We've already talked a little bit about uh, Miguel Sandoval. We're introduced to the lawyer in the Dominican Republic. Uh, I love that little one or like th- that little moment where he gets off the boat and the camera follows them and you get to see the whole quarry and just little things like he like Spielberg's like, hey, this is the this is the location, by the way. Mm-hmm. This is where we are. This is that's a digging thing. Uh, then we are. We're, I like how we hear about Grant. And then meet Grant the next scene, kind of building his legend. We then cut to Arizona, where we meet Dr. Alan Grant and Dr. Ellie Sadler, paleontologist, paleobotanist. Uh, we get that iconic scene where Dr. Alan Grant uh, scares the shit out of that little boy yep. who grows up to be Chris Pratt, allegedly. <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> that's so sad. Remember that thing? Six foot turkey um, kid. Uh, Scott, something you said that I really wanted to comment on is... It surprised me when you mentioned how what David Kep brought to the script was he took these characters and really made them caricatures and made them larger their life and easy to understand. It's like that is so true, because if you look at Sadler and Grant and Malcolm and Hammond, they you you could see their silhouette. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a really iconic look. But what's so crazy is I never think of these characters as caricatures or larger than life because because Neil and Dern make their characters feel so human. Yes. Their interaction. It feels like you're in a, you're even as a kid, I felt like I was watching a real adult relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like during it, like the way they rib with each other and mess with each other. It just feels so like they're not trying to make you like them. Yeah. They like each yeah. other. And there's like that, like nuanced chemistry that doesn't have to be um, exposed for you. Like, it's just like, you feel like, yeah, these characters have been with each other for so long and I just met them like, and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm on board. Yeah. And like, and like, you know, we didn't need any of that backstory because like everything, these characters are wearing their backstory. Like, Oh, these, they don't have a lot of funding that their thankless work. Hammond like blows their dig away without even thinking about it. They're so happy when Hammond funds their dig for just three more years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, we know these are they're, they're drinking champagne out of little plastic cups. Mm-hmm. They were saving the champagne. Mm-hmm. Like you don't you don't need to know like how they met or how long they've been blah 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 blah. Yeah, right. And right. the only exposition you get is he doesn't like kids, and then you start if you're smart enough to pick up on that, then you go, oh, so maybe that's why the relationship isn't as you know classic as you yeah. would think it is because he has this issue with having kids and. You know, I, you get it right in the beginning of the scene because they're brushing off the dirt off of this fossil that you quickly understand mm-hmm. these are the paleontologists. These are the people who deal with dinosaurs. They know what they're talking about. And then it's like, oh, he just doesn't like kids. So it's you. that's the basis of it. <laughs> yeah. And he's ever like, I don't like kids. You know, I don't like kids. You know, like, I haven't seen this movie in a while. I'm looking forward to rewatching it. But when I think about the characters in Jurassic Park, those are caricatures. Those are like, I'm the, I'm the dad, you know? And I guess like when I think about like the Claire Owen. Oh, in Jurassic relationship, World. You said, you said Jurassic, Jurassic World. You said Jurassic Park again. And I was oh, confused. okay. Yeah. When it's like, yeah, sorry. Yeah. When I think like the characters in Jurassic World are very broad and like, I'm this guy in the sure. movie and we're going to speak in very broad movie language. And it's kind of, I'm really looking forward to seeing how those char- characters interact mm-hmm. because like, they're just so lived in, in, in this first movie. And I they're... already, I already love in the trailer, like Ian giving him shit about you made a promise to a 
to a dinosaur. <laughs> like I just, I already oh, think yeah. that that's really. I'm like, yeah, get him. <laughs> yeah, drag him. But the, yeah, um, yeah, not, oh, please. I was gonna say, but just to, not to skip ahead in Jurassic World. But yeah, they do have that. They have to tell the audience what their history is. Uh, yes. Claire and Owen, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, Remember we have went to, on that date, and it, yeah, we have to do all this yeah. over again. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't you and remember that time we dated? Like, no, I completely forgot. No. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> one of my one of my least favorite, like maybe my le- my absolute least favorite, like exposition dialogue technique is the mm-hmm. hey, remember the fact of like we are this thing that you couldn't possibly ever forget, um, because it's just a part of your life. Hey, remember how you're we're my brothers? big sister? Remember? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> remember? Hey, you know how you're my mom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think, and we're going to bring this up again, one moment in particular where I think Spielberg respects his audience in a way that not a lot of directors or big movies do nowadays. Yeah. Where it's like, no, they're not on their phone. What, 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 what does even on their phone mean? They're paying attention to the movie. Right. I can have a whole reveal based on the audience knowing how reflections work mm-hmm. and know that it'll be a fist pump cheer moment and I don't have to spell it out. Right. And I don't know if that kind of, I don't know. Um, but so. So, so I, please. another thing about this scene, um, this is one of those, you told me to talk about it. One of the things yeah, yeah. That, that Bethany noticed in this scene was like when Hammond lands, right? The helicopter you talked about, like blows their sight away and doesn't give a shit mm-hmm. and, and, um, or doesn't realize or whatever. Watch her watching it this time was the first time that she realized, oh, he does that because he knows that fossils are worthless now. Yeah. Like they it's, don't matter. Like like fossils don't matter. So like me landing here and ruining your sight doesn't matter because dinosaurs mm-hmm. are living creatures again. So none of mm-hmm. the what you're doing matters. So he has and, like, he has no respect for it. Yeah. Yes, and that's all and that's something that Malcolm calls him out on. It's like you did not do the work that these two did. Right. You did not you did not dig with your hands on your knees and work and do the move up the ladder. You just like standing on the stool. So of course he wouldn't think to be like, Oh, but what if they're on a dig? I, I shouldn't land my big, huge helicopter. Right. Like, yeah. He's, it, it, he's like, the respect thing is, is a huge, uh, uh, reference in that scene where he lands a helicopter and blows it over. And, it, and again, like I, I try not to reference Elon Musk, but that's someone we can use tangible today where it's like, it was you immediately what I thought of watching it this time. And it's like, like, oh, this would be Elon Musk today. Elon Musk is like, oh, I'm going to build a, a highway that's better for us. And it's like, you don't deal with this shit. You don't have no yeah, idea people, what you're talking yeah. about. You just have money and you're like, oh, this is a great idea. I could do this. And, it's and, like, and also, no matter how many times somebody says you're not building a new highway, you're building a death tunnel. He won't listen to them yeah. until... He builds it, and then it turns out to be a death tunnel, and everyone's like, "We told you it was a death tunnel." And he's and like, he but was "It was like, cool. Well, it was like, it was cool." He's <laughs> <laughs> exactly like John Hammonds. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, I have a feeling we're gonna, that's going to come up a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he convinces them through funding to visit him or visit this zoo or this enclosure. He's incredibly vague, and we don't question it. It's fine. They get on the they get on the helicopter, but before that, we meet uh, Dennis Nedry, played by Wayne Knight, and Dotson. Mm-hmm. Dotson didn't look up the actor name. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah, I could recite this movie, but like it's really cool. And we found out that the guy that this dude works, the company that this guy works for, Dotson, is apparently going to play into Jurassic World Dominion. Yes. I missed if he names his company. 
because the dialogue is so like naturalistic. I didn't Isn't really hear the, like I Biosyn, for... right? Yeah, it's the Biosyn. Yeah, it's the one. Didn't they introduce it in Fallen Kingdom? Like they they named it and. Everything. Oh, they named it in Fallen Kingdom. Okay. Yeah. Or isn't it in Lost World? I don't know. I haven't revisited a lot of the sequels in a while. So I'm excited. I just read yeah. the second book again. I read Lost World again, I think a year ago. And so I'm trying to remember if it's Biosyn. Because I get. Hammond's company is Engen, yes. right? Yes. It's a company that he paid for for the bioengineering. And then Biosyn, Dodson's mindset is like, oh, I don't believe in innovation because. The people who do the innovation, like let's say Elon Musk, right? He's like, oh, I'm going to build a better highway and fails, right? Then the other guy, Jeff Bezos, says, I wait for you to fail and then I buy a copycat version that works and then I say, I made it, I did it better. And so that's right, what yeah. Dotson does. He lets Hammond do the work with Engine and then Biosyn comes in, gets the patent off them and says, we made dinosaurs better and first and yeah. it, in a park that worked. Right. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about capitalism in this movie. And <laughs> well, and I want to talk about just... it. I want to talk about in this scene because in this Please. scene, right, he is, you know, creating the, 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 the corporate espionage plan that, that mm -hmm. um, happens over the course of this movie and gets the ball rolling on all hell breaking loose in this park. Yes. Um, and it's all coming from the basis that Nedry feels underpaid for the mm -hmm. expertise and the things that he brought to the table, which when you find out later what all he's done, it's like, <laughs> yeah. and then, and that he could be bought for $1.5 million is <laughs> flabbergasting. So he must mm -hmm. have been so severely underpaid because he's like the only computer guy there. Yeah. He's running he's it all. The, yeah. And he's yeah. he and he's able to be like wooed away with one point five million dollars. How is he not getting paid that annually at Jurassic Park? Yeah. You know, it's unbelievable. Yeah, spared no expense, my ass. Yeah. yeah, spared no expense, my ass. Absolutely. He's, he he's got half a gift shop open. Yeah, but he's not paying his. And I'm being like literal his tech guy. Yes. Yes. Singular. It's I. <laughs> work in uh -huh. it and if anyone else works in it they i feel like if you ever watch us park again you look at dennis nedry and you go this guy isn't wrong well he is wrong for what he did but he was wronged to begin with and like i've been severely underpaid as an it person and being your system administrator there's been so many times where i've been like i feel like i should just click the enter button and walk out of here right now because this is yeah god awful and the way you're treating me yeah yeah. Similar to how I think millennials have reclaimed like the girlfriend and parent trap as like a mist or like, you know, Joan Cusack and Adam's family values. I I think Dennis Nedry could do with some some redemption. The and then the 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 irony of this of this is that he's getting paid one point five million dollars to steal these embryos that they're gonna start their rival dinosaur land. Yeah. with right and he's doing that he's literally starting their entire company on the basis of 1.5 million dollars without which they wouldn't have a company <laughs> the so so the irony is that he's still being underpaid like he, he's uh, being yeah. underpaid by them 
is still way more than what he's right. getting underpaid by uh by Hammonds. Like minimum, minimum for what he's doing, for what he's bringing to them, minimum twenty million dollars and probably a bunch of back end like points and you know like right. stock all of that shit like he should have so much money coming his way for what he's doing and he's doing it for one and a half million dollars only uh 750 of which he's getting paid like today in the in the you know in the back and he's delighted to be doing it yes he doesn't even get that he's still being ripped off by a big huge corporation yes yes it is this is a severely anti-capitalist movie it um, is it is kind of it's kind of nuts so is jurassic world we'll get there um, i was gonna say that's kind of like my theme is like yeah trevorrow knew exactly what mm-hmm. world he was making a movie in i have a whole thesis i go of course we don't I have need a whole to be, yeah. thesis for for trevorrow and i can't wait to get to it i um, I, I hope to redeem that man um yeah. at least in terms of of this uh stuff but yeah let's let's one let's thing keep it moving one other thing I do really want to talk about with this Dennis Nedry scene, and it didn't really click until halfway through the movie. So Ian Malcolm's whole thing is chaos theory, mm-hmm. unpredictability. Mm-hmm. There are forces of nature. Nature itself will act in ways that man cannot predict mm-hmm. and cannot prepare for. Mm-hmm. And so we have John Hammond who just popped someone else's champagne and is like, come on, I've created this magical world. He has no idea that the tools of his creation's demise, Dennis, is already in motion. He is not even, he's not thinking about Dennis at all. He's not thinking about Dennis Nedry, but Dennis is already, machinations are already at work that he has no control over that are going to undo everything. Right. Um, that popped And it head. could be the fact and, that, like, you know, that John Hammond is not there. It allows Nedry to meet with Dotson because... If if Hammond right. was at the, the Discovery Center right now, he could not have just... Like, where's Dennis? He could not be like, listen, I'm taking a 15-minute break to go meet someone else, you know? Yeah. Like, lunch break yeah. kind of thing. The, 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 yeah. 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 Oh, man. Uh, so then we get a uh, great scene in the helicopter, like we said, where we get deranged Ian Malcolm growling at Laura Dern. Uh, <laughs> but he... I mean, you know, there's that line where he's like, oh, Dr. Sadler, I refuse to believe that you, of all people, know nothing about attraction. Right. And it's... Like this shouldn't this should be creepy, and maybe to some people it is, but I think in the movie like it works, right. and like Dern's reaction sells it that she's like, oh my god, who is this guy? Yeah, um, I brought I brought scientists, and you brought a rock star. You bring the rock star, yeah, right? <laughs> banger. And then, like you said, Mark Spielberg was like, hey, John Williams, I need you to give the concept of adventure a sound. <laughs> and John Williams was like, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, adventure. This is wonder and like. Just awe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's something where you, and like, is- hearing the music, you <laughs> feel the warmth of the sunlight over the ocean, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's that kind of yeah, feeling yeah. where you're like, this, I want that. Like, I want to feel the warmth of the sun from a helicopter window on my way to an island. Like, that sounds great. <laughs> I've, got, I've got tickets to see John Williams this summer because he plays at the Bowl every year. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm so excited because he played absolutely zero jurassic park last year and i think because of the new movie it's gonna be like oops all jurassic park bangers and i cannot wait um it's gonna be nuts i can't wait 
Ah, uh, yeah. Wow. And it's it's literally a, a I mean it's a beautiful shot. I don't want to underscore what Dean Cundy's doing, but like mm-hmm. it's a helicopter flying towards an island. <laughs> I thought that this time too. Yeah. We've seen They're that. Like, nothing's yeah. even happening. There's so many <laughs> helicopters flying towards things in movies and you usually just see it as like establishing shot, right? right. Like this is <laughs> yeah. but and there's also been so many helicopter scenes, people in helicopters having to talk to each other. Maybe it's exposition, like maybe it's mm-hmm. explaining like, oh, this person is this person. You guys are going to this island. This is Katana. Yeah. She's got my back kind of thing. Like there's so many <laughs> helicopter scenes, but this one is comforting in a in a weird way because you're meeting people at the same time. Yeah, um, a lot of good stuff in the helicopter. I love the little moment where uh, Dr. Grant realizes that he has two seatbelt ends and mm-hmm. so he ties them in a knot. Yeah. It's such a little moment, but it really endears the audience of like, oh, we like this guy. But he, he's a thinker. He'll solve a problem. But it's but he's, not. He's funny. But it's not just that, because this is mm-hmm. the thing that I pointed out to Bethany, and it absolutely blew her mind. And if we didn't point open. it out, the audience would be yelling at us right now. Yeah, yeah. It's the <laughs> fact that it's two female ends that don't go together, but life finds a way, and he ties them together and makes them a seatbelt. Um, it's like um, the entire theme of the movie <laughs> in one tiny moment of just re- character reveal also, but just like proving <laughs> the point that, you know, comes down the pipe yeah. later. Um, yes, it's amazing. Uh, Sometimes a good movie, a great movie is just echoing its theme again and again in yes. different ways. Yeah. Yes. Every- and it does it. It does it in different angles throughout it. Like you mm-hmm. brought up like the chaos theory of it all and like how that sort of like trickle down of chaos causes Mm -hmm. everything that happens. There's the whole life finds a way theme. And then there's also this other theme that isn't like, it's very strong, but they never like, I guess shine too hard of a light on it. But the idea of like not wanting to be a father and then sort of becoming a father and like that whole thing, which I guess is also you know, part of the life finds a way in a way of like, oh, you don't want to be a dad? Well, <laughs> tough, right, life tough shit, yeah. buddy. Life's got other plans for you. you. You've been designed to want that. Yeah, yeah. And um, or you or you could argue that Alan evolves, right? Totally. And uh, I don't. Oh God, I'm so close to just because the ending. That ending hit me different too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I'll talk about that when the time comes. But right. uh, we we get to the park. It's the scene where they, you know, I, I love how Ellie is transfixed by a plant and having the same discovery that Dr. Grant is making, but about a plant or about her, her field. Um, this effect holds up like gangbusters. I don't know if it's just me loving this movie, but like that whole, you know, the brachiosaur and like the, the stomp and the way the ground shit Dern and Sam Neill's reactions are iconic. It's still watching their reactions. <clears throat> still brings tears to my eyes like just their reactions even before you see the dinosaurs them seeing mm-hmm. the dinosaurs and just thinking like what like just the empathetic like <laughs> connection i'm i'm having with these characters just like thinking about i don't need backstory i know that they're paleontologists i know that they have studied their entire lives thinking mm-hmm. about dinosaurs thinking about what they would be like in real life thinking about what they went through, what how they lived, how they walked, how they breathed, mm-hmm. and then 
to just be minding their own business, not knowing what they're walking into, and then seeing a dinosaur, a real loving, like, walking dinosaur in front of them, what that must be like, what that must feel right. like to them. It is just, like, it's a lot. Like, it, it's making me emotional just thinking about it right now. But, like, it's a yeah. lot. It's a lot. And, yeah, it's difficult to imagine that that be that kind of wonderment that we've been talking about being in like a Joe Dante or Tim Burton version of this. I agree. Yeah. Maybe Richard Donner. <laughs> Richard Donner would do it. He, I, I, I cause um, it's again in that same vein and it's, it would, yeah. and I think, you know, I, I think a lot about Superman. I think a lot about Jurassic Park, but it's hard to find that in movies now where, mm-hmm. um, this is so earnest and, and how it is about like, how special it is that they're seeing a dinosaur in real life. Like it, it's here again in our world. And it's mm-hmm. so hard to find movies that do that again, especially like, yes, it's a visual effect. Yes, it's a CGI, but you have to lend yourself to be like, they are seeing this for the first time. And so like this scene exists in this movie and it's hard to find movies that do a scene like this again, to be like, please, believe in these characters like when they are seeing this for the very first time like this mm-hmm. sense of wonderment that's on them this realization like it's slow because you like we're telling you to take the time to process this in like they are processing it and like it's hard to find movies that do that again yeah yeah movies that even go in with the objective of wonder mm-hmm. of we want to make the audiences feel something in that kind of grand, like Walt Disney tradition of like making them feel something, taking them on a ride. It's, it's like, I can't think of a movie that was even trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think of R- Sam Raimi's Spider-Man where he really wanted you to feel the elevation of Peter learning how his powers work and the crazy zoom of Tobey Maguire. when he's like, woo, like I could, but that's yeah. fun. That's yeah. like, yeah, it's like, he's a kid. He's yeah. figuring this out. And yeah, no, I, yeah. Uh, so then we we get back to the uh the visitor center kind of like the main building uh where we get the when dinosaurs ruled the earth and the skeleton and we go on we talked about it a little earlier but the uh the dino dna mr dna uh one of the best examples of exposition like distribution in the movie ever i mean like i love this scene every mr dna line is great mm-hmm. Uh, and it works like you, you, you buy, I mean, I'm sure like it's super science, but like as an audience member, you kind of like, okay, yeah, they've, they filled in the blanks with frog DNA and you get a, you get a dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it makes it sound so simple that this is like the, the problem is like the exposition might've been too good that people leave. And now in today's age we go, oh, well, we can do this, right? We can do the frog DNA and start cloning things like is this a possibility it's like okay maybe the movie shouldn't have told you that like it's a little too good but uh we should never consider cloning dinosaurs but it's this scene is it's such a joy to watch you feel like you're on a ride you're kind of like i want to be in that theme park of jurassic park and i think that's the immersive part that steven spielberg sells so well it's like to really get you into the into the movie, it's like you feel immersed because you want to go on this ride right now and find out how they're cloning dinosaurs. <laughs> Absolutely, I want to know Was what this, the rest uh, of the ride is. <laughs> right? right? Are, are you are you kind That's of a little point. bit bummed when yeah. they when they bail yeah. and they lift the? 
Yeah, I know. I I I actually think it's a huge mistake that this ride isn't part of mm. the pre-show of like the Jurassic Park ride at um at Universal. Right. I think it's a huge mistake not having this they, be like part of the pre-show. They do it now for uh Universal Studios Beijing. Their Discovery Center is their queue. Oh. Wow. The Jurassic World queue though. So it's a Jurassic World lab and oh, whatnot. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, that's a uh, good idea, though. That is a good idea. Yeah, Scott, was this a moment you always enjoyed revisiting yes. for the theme park vibes that you were talking? Yeah, about? for sure. Because the mm. rest of it is much more like zoo vibes, um, mm. you know. But this, that's especially true. with this them like the... driving by stuff and not seeing anything, like I was like, that's the <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, the, zoo that's the most zoo yeah. shit I've ever seen. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, this is so fun and I, I i really would love to see like a full-scale version of this that you can that you could ride mm-hmm. with like actors pretending to be them yeah or or animatronics uh, I'd, i i would take animatronics that'd be fun you mean autoerotic yeah auto autoerotic auto-erotic. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then we meet uh one of my favorite characters in the whole franchise i can't wait to talk more about him uh dr henry henry Wu, mm-hmm. played by the legend bd wong yep I, you die. Say, you, so you either I, die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. So, <laughs> so I've exactly I've said before that like you know this dude takes a hard left turn into like super villain territory. Yeah. in Jurassic World, yeah. and of like what a crazy watching and this is, this could be totally retroactive in my brain, mm-hmm. but there's something simmering under the surface of Henry in this movie. Well, I I like how proud he is of his work and he's kind of he kind of is you can he's so good bd wong but he's a little bit miffed and annoyed with like ian malcolm Mm -hmm. and his questions of like yeah dude we've done the i know i've thought about this too yeah like i know what i'm doing i know my dinosaurs right right yeah well but that's the sort of thing that you do when you're bringing back a character right it's like especially you're making jurassic world you're going to rewatch jurassic park a thousand times and you're going to be mm-hmm. like, so what's in here? What can I, what can I pull on? What strings mm-hmm. are here that I can pull on? So, yes, it is a retcon in many ways, but it's also a retcon built out of what's already there, I think. So, yeah. yeah. We saw something similar happen with the pirate sequels. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so this scene is super, I mean, I, that's redundant at this point, but, you know, this is an iconic scene yeah. with. Very, very you know, Epcot and- vibes this whole sequence has. <laughs> yeah. Living with the land. Yes. Do you. Th- <laughs> yes. Do you, do you think if, if, if Walt Disney had created Jurassic Park, do you think Walt would also insist on being present for every dinosaur birth? Yeah. He, yeah. yeah. Walt Disney, kind of, I would. Kind of, he would. Yeah. You feel it, man. Kind of, almost kind of creepy, borderline paternal. Like I have to see all the little baby dinosaurs get born. Yeah. And, well, but it's and it's also like it's not just like creepy paternal, but it's also like you did this, I did this. I yeah, like yeah. it's very much like that vibe. Also, <laughs> I did this. I did takes this. it away. Yeah. <laughs> I paid for it, so I did it, which is like the most so I made capitalist it. shit That's ever. Like, that is, yeah, that's the mentality. He's yeah. like, I, this is my creation. I'm God. You're a scientist? You're the scientist who created it, but I told you to create it. I'm, and I I'm the it. higher power. Yeah. Yeah. Big, again, big Elon Musk energy where, like, I'm an expert if I put enough money into it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And also, you know, I just got done watching uh, the the dropout on Hulu, mm-hmm. and that is also about a capitalist disguised as a scientist, right? Of like cutting corners and not paying attention to the experts, not listening to people telling you, "Hey, don't do this," but finding people that kind of share your uh, uh, selective vision, vision, right? You know, mm-hmm. right? So you kind of get the sense that Henry and John are like kindred spirits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like Henry, like, sure, you can call it a retcon for like the the development of his character in the Jurassic World trilogy. But the the Michael Crichton stencil is still there where it's like we have to say, hey, this is going to be a problem. And then, of course, uh, society, which is Henry Wu, is saying, no, everything is OK. Like, it's not going to go bad. And you're like, yeah. it is going to go bad. And he's like, no, we're better than that. It's like, OK, we'll see you in like 40 minutes when they escape. <laughs> uh, Henry is the one who tells Dr. Grant that all the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are female. Mm-hmm. And that really trips Dr. Malcolm off of like, whoa, you can't make like, let's matter. Like life will find a way. Yeah. And then we cut to uh, the Raptor enclosure. Uh, not for nothing. Really hope Alejandro, the gourmet chef, made it off the island. OK. Oh, I, uh, I think everybody made it off the island. Like, like, you know, everyone who was working, I think, made it off because yes. they, they had that last call for the ship later. That like yeah right. they all they all hopped on. You gotta so. we gotta go. <laughs> yeah. Kevin says yeah. we gotta go. We gotta go. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm gonna bring up the storm later for sure. Yeah. Um, um, but I see, uh, think. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, go. I was gonna say just, yeah. One more thing on the Henry Wu thing is is the, mm-hmm. I think the real kicker of that conversation is when they're you know you think about bioengineering and they've explained how um, difficult this process has been, but he says when he says we merely deny that second chromosome mm-hmm. it's like okay so you've been saying everything is complicated and then when you just go oh but that we just you know we just deny that simply when you say simply in a world of so much chaos like you cannot tell me that one thing is simple yeah so that mm-hmm. is always like the biggest red flag in that part yeah yeah the arrogance on display in this movie is subtle mm-hmm. They don't knock your knock it over your head like they woo and Hammond. They seem like sensible people, and it is until you catch little moments like that where you're like, "Oh, wait a second, this yeah. seems kind of well." That's the thing about about characters like this is that they're all that arrogance is what gets the job done, and they're only mm-hmm. seen as arrogant if it doesn't work. If it mm-hmm. works, everyone treats them, you know, puts them on a pedestal. Look at Walt Disney. Walt Disney was a very arrogant guy. Um, yes. He was like, I just went, I went and saw the real Matterhorn. We should have that in our park. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. Figure it out. I like, yep. that's yep. it. <laughs> and like, oh, okay. I guess we're building I... the Matterhorn in Disneyland now. Whatever. <laughs> you know, um, it was, it was like, it's a lot are of there that. Imagineer interviews where they've asked, like, I don't know, like ask original Imagineers what their conversations were like with Walt Disney. Like, I want to know what they were what that energy yeah. was like in in a conversation. <laughs> oh, I mean, they they I've heard interviews with them where they do call him like infuriating. Like he was infuriating because he wouldn't take no for an answer and the most infuriating part was that he was always right. Was that like when he wouldn't take no for an answer, they would figure it out and it would happen. Um and so he was he was always rewarded with that attitude. Um mm-hmm. and so they were like I don't know what to say. Like I I can't say that he was wrong because he wasn't. So, like, 
well, it was annoying, but like he was right all the time, which was even more annoying. So I don't even know right. what to say, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting. And I guess going back to backstory, like it's cool that we never have to learn how Hammond became John Hammond. Mm-hmm. Well, I get the flea circus, but he didn't get rich off the flea circus. Right. You know, he did the flea circus. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, they feed the goat and then the, the cow. We meet Muldoon. The, 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 the cow. Bull the cow. Or whatever. The cow, but the, um, I, the, the moment about later. the thing about the bull, um, number one, horrific. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> truly horrific. Uh, that poor, I just think about that poor animal who has no idea what's about to happen to it. Um, but mm. uh, again, not real though, so it's fine. Um, but. <laughs> When it when the thing comes back out and it's all damaged and stuff, two things mm-hmm. are notable for this that I find I find fascinating and is definitely probably in a cinema sins video somewhere. But like oh, one, not a spot of blood on that thing, which is <laughs> yeah <laughs> unbelievable. And then two, who's that hungry? Yeah, and then two, you you telling me that like. They have to like buy a new one of those contraptions every time because like <laughs> it comes out just absolutely wrecked to shit. And the like that's true. I guess they just they've got that in the budget of like, yeah, we go through three of these a day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Spare no expense. Yeah, I guess so. Crazy. Yeah. I, I just picture Dennis like seeing that and you're like, How much how much do you spend on these harnesses every year? Hey, about like mill, about a mill every year on harnesses. Yeah, cool. the supply chain. They come in and bring the little oh, harnesses for each cow. Them, yeah. yeah, great. I don't have dental, but it yeah. seems like Muldoon is the only one employed here that isn't arrogant. Like he comes in saying like they should be exterminated. This is a this mm. god awful idea. I'm good at my job, yeah. which is taking care of animals and and like being a game warden. Uh, and this is a bad idea. I'm gonna tell you right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's the thing I love about that character is that like he's like, look, all of these things should be put down. This shouldn't exist, but like yeah. it does, and so I have to be here because yeah, somebody right. needs to like be in control and without me no one would be. Like you would all treat mm-hmm. them like dogs or something and like they're not dogs. They're insane yeah. killing machines. Yeah. Muldoon's yet another character where in any and not even bad movies in good movies there probably would be a scene where this is Muldoon you ever hear of the white rhinoceros not anymore because he shot it in the head right, or something right. but like you just see his costume and the actor is selling it and you're like oh that guy's you know if I'm three I'm like that dude's a big game hunter and his job is to keep the dinosaurs from eating people yeah yeah and it works yeah absolutely and they don't treat him as like part of the like henchmen you know like he's not just Mm -hmm. one of the bad guys he's like no i do work here but you know i i have (laughs) i'm a person with a job yeah i'm a i'm a person and my my name is muldoon (laughs) (laughs) uh then we cut to the dinner scene where the characters talk about a lot of the stuff we've been talking about so we don't really get it we don't need to get into it um I really like the line where he's like, I don't believe this. Like, I, the scientist on my side, the only person on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. And, uh, we haven't talked about him yet, but he's good. He is. He is good. He is good. Um, I love how quickly he turns around. Oh, yeah. He's like, oh, we're going to be rich. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He turns around. But he's a little bit like, um, like, he's different in the book for sure, if I remember him correctly. Like, but the, that's the beauty of this movie is the way they turn this character around um mm-hmm. is is it works out really great for the for how he becomes fodder for the for the film so 
Uh, and then after that, that meet, that tense meeting is interrupted by the arrival of Hammond's grandchildren, Lexi and Tim. And I love the little moment where the kids like tackle John and like, oh, my kid. And the camera just tilts up a little bit and you see Alan. Uh-huh. And then you see Ellie reacting to Alan. And it's such a lovely little moment for the audience of like, oh, we remember he hates kids. Yep. Like, this is fun. What a fun little riff to this. Yeah. Uh, and then we get the the cool like. Where, you know, the Timmy is, like, following Alan through the cars and won't leave him alone. And just rings so true to, like, yeah, when you're, like, a kid, you see, like, a cool adult. And you're like, oh, my God, I have to show him how much I know about dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that. I love I love that, like, Great. Yeah, yeah, the chase sequence of, like, mm-hmm. him just trying to get away from him and going to the different cars. And he's just following yeah. him all the way through. It's so good. And then, like, the punchline of he thinks he's gone, and then the camera turns, and Lexi's there waiting for him. And it's like, she she wanted me to ride with you because it would be good for you. <laughs> yeah. And such a beautiful set, that Discovery Center. Like, even before they oh, made yeah. it a real thing. But just the, the, the two fossils and this spiral staircase. It's like, it's such a beautiful set. <laughs> yeah. The, the pillars and, with, like, fossils carved out of them. So Yeah. And I think it adds to that level of why, Scott, you wanted to revisit this so many times as a kid, because like you really that looks like a place that if this were a real theme park, that is what that building would look like. It's extremely well thought out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's why it helps getting someone like someone with a real love of like theme parks as a concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The branding just just doesn't feel fake. You know, like there's so often that you watch stuff that has like that is being brand that there's like a branding within the movie, you know, Mm -hmm. that you're just like, this isn't real. Like this, this looks like movie branding. This looks like Let's Potato Chips. Like it just looks fake, you know, Um, (laughs) and and yet this looks like a real like, you know, a real company, a real logo, you know. It kind of, it's a weird, I don't even know if it counts as irony that this is such a critical, a movie so critical and cynical about capitalism that is like so good at branding that knows they have an absolute banger of a logo. So they put the logo of the movie on every walkie talkie and helmet and (laughs) car door and shoulder (laughs) and shoulder. Yeah. And like Mark, I'm sure sure both of you can attest to how much merch there is at the Universal Parks. Mm -hmm. Oh, for Jurassic Park and. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Uh, I'm looking at that symbol, like maybe 50 oh. <laughs> symbols. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, <laughs> back in the control room, I love a 90s control room. Mm-hmm. Computers and science everywhere. We meet Samuel L. Jackson playing Doctor Arnold. Doctor Arnold. Um, oh. yeah. We hear him. He has a he has an audio cameo yes. earlier in the movie, which I've never heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and you're like, that's Sam Jackson. Yeah, and I was like, oh, there he is. Oh. <laughs> this was the year before Pulp Fiction? Right. Yes. 1994. Uh, he says, hold on to your butts. He also, it is a year before, and yet, it feels five years before. Because the Sam Jackson in Pulp Fiction feels like a completely different person. Like, this feels like a young man. It's, yeah, it's weird. And then you get into, like, Die Hard 3. Yeah. Where... It's just, yeah, 90 Sam Jackson is really interesting. Yeah. He went a lot of different appearances. I mean, even after Pulp Fiction was Jackie Brown, and he's a little bit different in that one, too. And it's, yeah. Yeah. But you're right. Like, Pulp Fiction feels like it should come before these. Yeah. And it does. Yeah. It's, it's really, he's great. He's in full movie star mode where he's just like, he doesn't need to act. Mm-hmm. 
He just needs to be Sam Jackson. Like, I'm a scientist. These are my lines. This is my job. I'm tired. And it's just <laughs> tired. I'm smoking in the office, which is yeah. great. And it's great for Sam Jackson because, I've, you know, obviously he's very typecasted into Sam Jackson, like his own persona. He's a personality actor now. And this movie, you know, he wasn't just, um, you know. He's just a working actor. Coming yeah. to America was his first movie, right? And his role was literally angry black guy. And, like, this is not that. And it's so, like, wow, Sam Jackson, we have to appreciate that you can, you know, you don't get typecasted in a movie like this that's so right. iconic. Right. Right. This is before he was just, like, a, a guy auditioning for a role. Yeah. Yeah. This is just, like, a few years after Goodfellas. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Just, this is, like, he was just about to break through. Um, kind of crazy. And then... uh you mentioned this earlier, Scott, but yeah, the moment where they think they're going to see... Okay, Dr. Grant's excitement when he thinks they're going to see the uh, Dilophosaurus. Uh-huh. It's like, Dilophosaurus. And then when he doesn't, he goes... He, he literally strikes the truck. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Drat. And when I... And when I was eight, I really related to that. Yeah. Yeah. The scene hits harder. Like, the more you watch it, like, <laughs> like you're just like, damn, I really wanted to see that. Like, you want the theme park to work. Yeah. You do want it to work. Like, mm-hmm. even now, despite all these movies we have and, you know, all the discourse of being like, no, this is a terrible idea. Have you seen Jurassic Park? It's a bad idea. It's like, you see this scene and you're like, I wish it just worked. I wish he just saw the dinosaurs, the 12-minute thing was done, and they went right. home and they said, that was great. We saw a Dilophosaurus eat some chopped meat in the trough and that was it it's like right damn yeah. damn <laughs> they say that a lot about horror movies where like a good horror movie you watch it and you always kind of want or think there's going to be a different outcome but there never is yeah yeah i like uh, i like the joke a lot of like you know the the riff on zoos um mm-hmm. but i will say that a capitalist like john hammond's would absolutely want everything working at a hundred percent and make sure that they would see every single dinosaur that is on this tour. He would find a way like to lure them to the, to the edge of the enclosure or whatever. Um, Because like leashed. Yeah. Cause he would want them to see all of them. Like, you know, so I will Mm -hmm. say that's, that is, I I like the joke. I like the joke. And I think (laughs) I I prefer that the joke is here, but like, yeah, in, Mm -hmm. in reality, um, he would have found some way because uh yeah i don't know the idea of zoos is really interesting because you know zoos used to be presentational right Mm -hmm. and but they like tortured those animals to do that Mm -hmm. and now Mm -hmm. zoos aren't a presentational thing they're more of a conservation um, yeah preservation thing and so now they're just like yeah, maybe you'll see animals. We don't really care either way. Thank you for your your donation. <laughs> like that's yeah. the vibe of zoos now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that this is not that. It doesn't. It doesn't seem like Jurassic Park is trying to be a preservation. It really does seem like it's trying to be a zoo, um, in the traditional mm-hmm. sense. But it's still, uh, uh, you know, falling to those preservation, um. I guess yeah. I'm really excited to go into Jurassic World because I feel like they went in a different direction, yes. which is theme park. Yes. Yes. And they, yeah. And they, they, were, they, were... they do the same thing. And you'll see, it. obviously, they're like, they find a way to bring the dinosaur to the window because 
that's what you've paid to see. You want exactly. to see the dinosaur. You don't care about taking care of them because they were made in a lab. They're not real animals. No one really cares about them, right. you know. So, but they the line that they say when they enter the the ride here, the tour is uh, Ian Malcolm says, "What do they got in there? King Kong." And King Kong is a reference to that as well as zoos. It's like we take what we think is exotic, what we think is like, oh, it's the eighth wonder of the world. And really, it's just an animal that you've captured and brought into a tiny cage and been like, look at this great animal. It's like, oh, wow, that's a great animal. And like you have no care or consideration about what you've done to this, to, to nature itself when you've captured this thing and put it on chains. And that's... Mm-hmm. That's why I love that Peter Jackson version because it starts with a a 1930s zoo and it's like, this is depressing. Yeah. That's where we're going. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That that's Uh, an interesting thing that you brought up though, that I think is, is really fascinating about, about the gates, the iconic Jurassic park gates. Right. Yeah. I think that's so interesting is that it's literally that to be a reference to King Kong so much that they like have the reference and dialogue. But I think people have mostly forgotten that. And they're just like, oh yeah, those are those iconic Jurassic Park gates. And I just think, that yeah, interesting. yeah, and it's like true. literally a reference to King Kong. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And it like absorbed it. Yeah. It absorbed and now, it. And now it yeah, became its own iconography. It. Yeah. It's interesting. I created this. That's yeah, just yes. Park. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, uh, the tour continues to be a bust to the point where, uh, Sadler and Grand eventually bail when they notice, uh, a sick triceratops. Mm-hmm. And this is where Sadler really launches into her zone and immediately like starts like investigating and like, is like, oh, this kind of plant isn't supposed to be here. Maybe the triceratops could have eaten it and links up with a, uh, a, a kind of like not a scientist, but like kind of just like a biologist. He's just like there to care for the animals as the uh, storm picks up. And I kind of really noticed the storm for the first time watching this movie. Cause everyone knows like a storm comes. It's the reason the, they have to evacuate the park. Mm-hmm. It like it, it messes everything up. And the storm is also nature. Yes. And it just reinforces that theme again of like, yeah, the best laid plans. John Hammond has all of these plans and it's going to be great and the pomp and the, and the show of it all. And this big storm that nobody planned on comes and just sweeps all that off the board. Yeah. The chaos theory. And, and that links to what you were saying that Nedry is chaos theory. In the movie, I tend to joke about it. I think a lot of people do is that Nedry activates the storm by pressing the enter button and you go, like you hear the thunder as soon as he presses the button and it's like, oh, he created that. But it's a, the parallels because Nedry is the chaos element to what is he's been afflicted by John Hammond. And so he's like seeking revenge for being um, cheaped on, cheated on. Wrong. And yeah. And then the storm is also chaos theory. So them doing their thing at the same time, both the storm and Nedry, it's like, it's happening. Yeah. The, the I domino like the storm pieces. doesn't have it, please. Well, I that? was always under the impression that the storm was part of the plan. Like Nedry's plan was like, he was using the storm to hide the fact that he was turning security mm. systems off. Like he could just yeah. blame the storm. Cause there's, I don't think it's Sam Jackson, but one of the scientists is like, cause when they see the storm coming, they're like, Oh, well it could always turn South like the last one. So you get the sense that, oh, yeah, these storms occur regularly. We are in Costa Rica, but they don't take it seriously. Right. 
Right. They built They're everything like, well, out of concrete. Could... <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I really love how Spielberg lets Wayne Knight as Dennis have this whole little like montage of him just being a super spy. Yeah. I love it's, it. It's really fun. I love that. Um, yeah, it's also, you know, I guess it should be noted that like the storm was always in the script. It's in the book um, mm-hmm. as well. And uh, but they they the shots that they get of the storm, like raging this island, um, those are that was a real storm that came through uh, and they just like went and shot some of it. Um, Dean Cundy was just like. I mean, production value, guys. Like, we're going to shoot a little bit of this yeah. at least. Um, I've been ready to go. I'm Dean Cundy. Yeah. So he went out and just, like, shot a bunch of the tropical storm until it got so bad that they were like, you need to come back to the hotel, you crazy <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Maybe that's um, what helped production. Maybe they were just like, hey, this is going to really help get good. this movie done. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, Scott, it just hit me. This is kind of a fun little uh, Back to the Future minute. Uh reunion yeah. We're talking about dean cundy again cundy absolutely yeah good old cundy so good old cundy <laughs> they get to the t they get to the t-rex enclosure i love the little bit of awkwardness between grant and malcolm where i think this is where malcolm for the first time asks if dr sadler is single or like what's going on with you guys <laughs> and he's like we're we're dating and he's like oh okay I did. okay cool it was it was unclear yeah yeah um where it's like Oh, I hope they're not scared. Like, why would they be scared? I didn't say you were scared. No, yeah, I, I, they're they're scared. The kids are scared. <laughs> yeah, the kids are scared. Uh, oh, uh, and then, I mean, like we already talked about it, but like the freaking shot of the, the, the glass, the water shaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, not for nothing, but like I take notes and like you know, like like scene breakdowns of the movie, and literally, the my note for the water shaking is like the end of the first page. Yeah. So you you could literally like cut it in half. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it and begins. It, this is really cuz you're right, you're right, Mark. This is kind of a comforting watch up to this point. Mm-hmm. It's warm, it's colorful. You got these fun characters that are really charming and you got the cool like ooh dinosaurs and then this is when it takes a hard right mm-hmm. into like nonstop thriller horror territory. Yeah, cuz you've sold the audience on what John Hammond is selling them. You know, like you've convinced mm-hmm. the lawyer you know, you go, dinosaurs, that sounds like a bad idea. This must be a horror movie. But then the movie sells you on this product, and you're like, oh, I love capitalism. Okay. I love theme parks. <laughs> I want to be in this. Like, And, yeah. like, I'm over here saying, like, oh, I'm, you know, can't stand Elon Musk and all these things. But then you watch Jurassic Park, and you go, I would like this. And then it goes, no, you don't. You fell yeah. for it. You're always going <laughs> to fall for it. It's also, like, it's also it's also this amazing <laughs> structural thing that, you know, movies don't do anymore because for some reason they're like, well, we promise like if Jurassic Park was made today. I mean, it literally is getting made today, but you know what I mean? Yes. Um, I, right. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the structure of of this would be like, oh, well, we promised you guys a theme park gone wrong movie. So that means that the theme park needs to go wrong at the 20 minute mark. Because right. we need you the whole amaze- movie to be theme park gone wrong because that's what's in the marketing. But mm-hmm. what this movie does is it's like, no, no, no. We have pre-theme park and then we have the act two break is seeing the dinosaur for the first time being like, how did all this happen? And then the midpoint break is all hell breaking loose, theme park gone wrong, all of that stuff. 
Um, and I think that that's yeah. really amazing that like it takes literally a full like hour and five minutes before the T-Rex breaks out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you get that you get that cold open to kind of show the audience like, hey, this scary stuff can happen in this world. It's coming. But then, yeah, yeah, you do get that long. It makes me think about like, you're right. And I think what, what Mark said earlier about like if this were to with the cinema sensation of this movie is like, well, the scary stuff doesn't happen until an hour. You know, right. But then again, if you're a fan of what Michael Crichton is trying to sell you here, it's like the scary stuff is always happening because John Hammond's here and Nedry's here and Dodson's (laughs) here and all this stuff is like you should be scared of that first half of the movie. If you understand what's happening, it's like that is it's a time bomb. bomb, Right. Right. And it's the same thing with Godzilla movies. Right. Or at least you take the first movie and you take the newer movie Shin Godzilla. Um, and it's mm-hmm. like the scary part isn't just that Godzilla shows up and destroys the city, which is what you came to see the movie for. That's the second half of the movie. You have to understand that the government is messed up and there's like this political commentary that we have to talk about. And that's why Godzilla is here to destroy like nature, this storm that's coming in. Like mm-hmm. you have to mm-hmm. take the first half of the movie to understand that this part is scarier. <laughs> and that's a good comparison because then you look at Gareth Edwards' Godzilla movie and what was the number one complaint everybody had walking out of that movie was like, Godzilla didn't even Not show enough, until halfway yeah. through the movie. And yeah. it's like, mm-hmm. guys, you're missing the point of what the movie was trying yeah. to do. I'm like, granted, yeah. I don't love that movie. I love a lot of it, but like, I just don't care about the the two lead sure. characters. Well, that- and that's the thing is like, you know, imagine an hour of Godzilla where you care about Aaron Johnson and and Brian Cranston the way that you care about Dr. Grant and Dr. Sadler yeah. and Ian Malcolm. Right, right. Like, totally. Yeah, Because uh, it hasn't been a chore up until this point. It's been really fun. Right, right. And it's true. <laughs> but, so, but it's that problem of like over explaining a character's backstory instead of introducing a caricature of a character and letting the actor do all the work. You're you're mm-hmm. letting the and screenplay like, do all the work instead of the actor. You're not trusting your actors. And this movie trusts its actors to create characters that people are going to want to watch, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like you're going to you're going to make us care when Dr. Grant pulls out the flare. Yeah. And stand, you know, the first time you watch that movie, you don't know who's going to die. Right. Yeah. So it's like, oh, and speaking of that moment, I want to pose a question to the both of you. So, breaking this down. Uh Dr. Grant's plan is he's going to Wave the flare at the T-Rex, throw the flare into the trees. T-Rex is going to follow the flare and hopefully leave them alone. Right. Ian Malcolm screws that up right. by, yay, yay, over here, and leads the, trying to be selfless. So my question is, do you think Alan's original plan would have worked? Yes. That the T-Rex would have left them alone? Okay. Yes. I think, he Mark, I th- I think she would have come back. You know, mm-hmm. but I think I think she <laughs> like, was like fully on board to investigate that thing because it's moving and they're not. Right. Yes. It would have stopped moving. Right. Right. So the flare. it may Mark, not have worked because if you like in the second book and also the third movie, there are those moments where they're they're confronted by a T-Rex and uh, Dotson uh, doesn't move. And Alan Grant and the others in the third movie is like nobody move a muscle, and it shows like no T Rex eyesight is not based on movement. They mm. do see you, and so there's been like this right. like uh, Dotson dies in the second book at least, and Sarah Harding is like wow. he thinks it's based on movement, and like 
check this out and it just tears him apart <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah because the lawyer isn't isn't moving i mean he's like shaking but he's not oh. like waving his hands yeah, it, yeah well yeah he but yeah. But I will say about him being on the toilet, something I noticed this time that I don't think I've ever mm-hmm. noticed any other time. He is, because of the way that it falls away, like the, the bathroom yeah, thing, the, it like mm, falls away and reveals him in the exact same fashion as the goat. So, oh, wow. To, to oh. the T-Rex, the T-Rex is just like, oh, dinner. Like, that's that. This is that's what happens great. when I get to eat. It's like, Okay, I guess this is my next thing. Yeah, this my is, meal goat, is presented to me on a platform. <laughs> oh, that's scary. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's terrifying. One thing that <laughs> I will say, uh, Ian is 100% responsible for the lawyer's death, I think. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. He is. Yeah. He was not going in that direction. <laughs> that's chaos there, Again, baby. Th- you never know. Yeah. <laughs> if someone's going to run into your house, your bathroom, <laughs> with a T-Rex behind them. And s- and Scott, you mentioned, you asked me, like, you know, have you always seen this movie? And that kind of, like, I don't remember a time when I didn't know that Ian Malcolm was okay. Okay, yeah. Like, I don't remember feeling that, of like, oh, he's not dead. Like, yeah. that just has always been the story. That's that's something interesting that, like, I think when I have kids, I'm going to try to make a concerted effort to, like, hold back a lot of these movies. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Because, like, I didn't watch Star Wars until I was 10 years old. And I got to tell you. Uh, there is no memory that I have more implanted in my brain than the night that my dad showed me the Star Wars trilogy for the first time. And we mm-hmm. watched all three yeah. movies in a row because it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> um, you know, and like when you just have these movies as part of your life and you don't remember a time when they weren't there, you don't get that memory anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. It's something that I think about like, a lot. Uh, Mark, kind of similar vote. It was this kind of like you kind of grew up watching this, right? Yeah. So, what was the question that to if was I concerned? Do you remember about Ian like of like <laughs> yeah? Do you remember ever feeling like oh my god, he's really dead? or like you know yeah that that one first? So it's it's weird because like I didn't think he was dead because he's not mm-hmm. eaten, right? And so like that's the that's right. the logic, right? It's like well, not eaten, so not dead. You know, like, right. It's right. kind of like the no body rule with yeah. stuff, you know, no body, yeah. no crime, <laughs> no body, no crime. Uh, well, and then the other thing, too, also like metatextually, what they're doing here mm. is Ian Malcolm dies in the book um, and in, in Jurassic Park. Ah. Yeah, we'll get into it when we when we talk about the Lost World next week. But he dies in Great. Jurassic Park, the book um, and okay. or is presumed dead. And that's what this moment is. And so, oh, that's when he died in the book. To, so to everyone okay. watching the movie who read the mm-hmm. book, they're like, oh, yeah, now Ian Malcolm's dead. And so when he comes back, when he's alive later, that's like a surprise. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So. so back at the command center, everyone starts to realize that Dennis, A, fucked everyone and B, is gone. Um, It's like... <laughs> Man. Dennis just fucked everyone. Slow... Yeah, <laughs> everyone. Just... <laughs> everyone. They're so they're not even mad. They're like, oh, we could have seen this coming, I guess. Uh, meanwhile, Dennis is like trying to get to the boat in time, but the storm kind of messed his plans up. Or I think Scott, if you're right, he did pl- plan on the storm coming, mm-hmm. but maybe he didn't predict it to be this intense because. We get that scene where he tries to call the captain and the captain's like, we got to go. That, gotta, well, oh, no shit. So that's true. But you have to remember earlier he was a, he was being a coward where 
he okay. it was taking him forever to pull the trigger on the right. Plan. He was because he, he was like getting, uh, he, like, he was yeah. like freaked out about it. He was like getting nervous about yeah. doing it. Um, right, 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 right. And and so he, I think he just held off too long. Is the problem? Mm-hmm. And then I think this is the scariest scene in the movie. Yes, this is uh, where he meets the mm-hmm. yeah the Dilophosaur. Uh, I like how they kind of don't connect you, you, you again, like tr- respecting, trusting the viewer that like, oh, that's the dinosaur they were supposed to see earlier. Mm-hmm. I remember the Dilophosaur. Or maybe you don't catch it. And that's OK, too. The design of the Dilophosaur, however, mm-hmm. is, I believe. The reason why in the Jurassic World movies now dinosaurs are pets and are like cute and stuff because he's so damn cute. He's just so goddamn cute. It's he is impossibly cute until the until the the until he spits yeah. right until, until you until find the, out he's not cute and that's right this... right but he's so <laughs> cute like he's so cute and I think that a lot of kids grew up watching this movie and we're just like oh dinosaurs are cute like I want a stuffed dinosaur like I want to cuddle with the dinosaur and like mm-hmm. you know that's how Bethany was growing right. up you know and so I think that what they do with some of the dinosaurs in Jurassic World is a direct mm-hmm. response to the kids who grew up feeling that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was Bethany a Land Before Time kid? Uh, not a big one, I don't think. Um, okay, because they're all they're all cuddly and that yeah, one. Yeah, I think yeah. she watched We're Back more. I believe that's that's great. I mean, I but, did too. I never. Yeah. I was much more of a I, We're I, Back I kid than I was. A, it's a, that movie Land gets scary. The circus. That, oh, I, I had to fast forward the circus. Yeah, part circus part gets scary. Clowns are still <laughs> scary, man. It just yeah. you know, uh, but yeah. The, um, the, even in Jurassic World oh, with, the, with the petting zoo, it's like that's so cute. That's right, so, so cute. Yeah, I hope they were all okay. Uh, that was my concern <laughs> when Jurassic World goes haywire and the Tyrannodons start picking up the baby trikes. I'm like, hold on, not that one. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. Joe Dante could have directed Jurassic World for sure. Oh Joe, man, Jurassic World is big. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Uh, oh <laughs> i'm just thinking about joe dante's jurassic world and i'm just like oh that is the gremlins to the new batch of a jurassic park movie if there ever was one yes. oh, holy wow. shit yeah hulk hogan like fighting a raptor or <laughs> yes. something. i want to put a point because i don't know if this comes back and, and mark and scott helped me out being fans of you know the book and the mythos and stuff so the the shaving ke- the shaving cream can with all of the dna samples gets washed away and buried under mud as Dennis is getting killed. Mm-hmm. And do we ever, is that ever picked up again? In the Telltale video game, it's, it is. But now yes. that is Interesting. that is no longer canon because I think they're uh, finally picking it up in uh, Dominion. I believe yeah, got it. the Barbasol can is coming back into the equation in Dominion. So the Telltale game is now Jurassic Park Legends. Yes, it is. Yeah, that's what they spun it off of. And then, like, technically, that's Sarah Harding's dad, who is also the guy next to the Triceratops that is sick. His last name is Harding. And Oh, that's Sarah. Oh, Yeah, so there's, like, that weird, like, unspoken continuity where you go, oh, that's... Wow. Sleaze Bagano from, you know, the second episode, (laughs) and you have to watch this other star Wars story to figure it out anyways. But yeah, um, Steven Spielberg, I think he was like, Oh, they're talking about a sequel. And he's like talking to Michael Crichton. You guys are going to get into that about the second movie. So I'm not going to go into that, but yeah, I think they had plans for it. And then they decided not to until now. That's yeah. That's going to be, I wonder if in lost world, if Julianne Moore is ever like my dad was on the 
park and he thought it sucked. <laughs> something something I did just think about because you because you brought up the the Joe Dante uh, directing Jurassic okay, World, yeah. which honestly blows my mind. Um, it is interesting that um, I'm I'm looking up I'm looking up Joe Dante right now, but the other directors that I mentioned that didn't get to mm-hmm. scratch that Jurassic Park itch, right? Um, they yeah. all went on to I think in many ways do their own version of Jurassic mm, Park. Yeah. Because Tim Burton, like I was thinking like, what was it? What would be Tim Burton's Jurassic world? And I'm like, Oh, it'd be Mars attacks. I knew it. I, yeah. Like I was thinking Mars attacks it. is totally <laughs> yeah. his, his Jurassic Park. And Richard Donner did the Michael Crichton book timeline. He did the, he directed. Time- the, right, oh, he the did movie timeline. the medieval one. Yeah. 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 With, uh, with Paul Walker. Yeah, I need Paul to rewatch exactly. that. Um, but uh, I thought you were going to say Tim Burton made Dumbo because of that's a theme park movie. Well, I mean, there's that too, I guess. I haven't seen that. Um, oh yeah, and then Joe Dante yeah. did Small Soldiers, ah, uh, which is yeah. like w- Think things coming to life. Yeah, th- yeah, and it's and it's a ca- anti capitalist story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So, emissary of so, the yeah, Gorgonites. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I just <laughs> watched that movie recently. It holds up. It's a good movie. It's it should great. have had a, a, a spinoff that. show of something. It needed it a cartoon. That show. is another. Much like Jurassic Park, it is a very anti-capitalist movie, but had all these great toys. You that to buy you all and of I them. bought all of them because <laughs> oh, I wanted Ocula, and the only way to get Ocula was get the tank that had Ocula in it. I was, yep. Listen, I wanted all mm-hmm. of them. Yeah, Nick Nitro, so, baby. A, so it's interesting. They all PS1 went on game. to do like a Jurassic Park esque thing to scratch that itch that they never got to that's scratch with this for yeah. Universal too. That's like true. Small Soldiers was Universal. Yeah, that's true. That's so interesting. <laughs> So uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Alan's like dad arc, and it is really interesting how it is. You could almost argue that nature does take over. He he helps Lexi and Tim because he's a he's a good person and he's brave. But also, like we are on some level designed to want to help each other, like through evolution. Like if you see a kid in danger, a part of you is going to be compelled to like help the kid or push the kid out of the way um, to a certain extent. So when Grant. (laughs) <laughs> when they're when when they're when they survive the truck thing and uh lexi is like you know she's still in shock and i thought really you don't see that enough in movies where characters are in, in shock. shock yeah because they just experienced in italics some shit mm-hmm. yeah you know characters brush stuff off so easily in you movies. know we've been talking to a lot about backstory and stuff um and with these characters i find it so fascinating that we learn the backstory of these kids in a scene that features neither them nor their grandpa. Yes. Where the lawyer <laughs> and and the 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 dude that finds the 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 amber in the cave is just like, well, he's off yeah. because of the his daughter's getting a divorce. His daughter's getting a divorce. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're like, oh, they're like fresh childs of divorce, and that's why they're visiting their grandpa because that's why they attach so hard to Alan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's just like, it's, it's so funny that it's like, that's where you put that? the most backstory for any character is in a scene where no character related to those characters are in it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, that's great. Um, that. So yeah, it's like, but that's, and Dr. Rand's like, that's not what I'm going to do. And he's not like, I'm your dad now. He's just like, I'm, it's my, <laughs> that's what they should have wrote in the movie. <laughs> Look at Listen me. To me. Look dad. at me. I'm your dad now. I'm dad. Now. Huh. That's what it would have been if it was Harrison Ford. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, hey! The finger. He would look have, at yeah, me. I'm your dad thing. now. <laughs> I'm your dad. Climb the tree, Lexi. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, oh, speaking of the tree, is it just me? And again, I'm fine with it. Dr. Grant hauls ass up that tree. Yeah, he does. Yeah. That's a big tree. Mm-hmm. And he just climbs right up it. Yeah. I think there there is something to that where you're saying like nature takes over because especially by the time they get mm-hmm. to the tree and they're hanging out in the tree and then the, the brachiosaur shows up, it's like we've gone back 65 million years because here you are trying to escape the giant monsters that are out there and you you're without technology there's no cool goggles to wear or car to drive and all these other high-tech technology that doc, that john hammond paid for none of that exists you're stripped mm-hmm. of it so now you have to go sit in a, sleep in a tree with dinosaurs that can reach up there yeah. it's like nature has taken over it, it and it's it's like yeah these three characters go through this crucible where i mean you know we could talk about i mean the the car falling down the tree is amazing mm-hmm. um but then i i loved i do really love that moment where the three of them are up in the tree you know we've just had unbridled chaos and thrills and chills for like a, a solid few scenes in a row and we get this really quiet lovely scene and like the john williams score is is serving this and like yeah they like the camera zooms out and they're like sleeping on him. And he's like, I promise I'll stay awake all night. And it just, it works. Yeah. And it doesn't feel forced or, or fake at all. And I I just love too, that he like, even with all of everything that's happened, there is no part of Alan who like hates dinosaurs, you know? Um, (laughs) Right. Oh yeah. When he's like calling them, he turns, he's just like, no, these ones are nice. Like these ones are like cows. Like it's fine. (laughs) Um, you know, like I know we almost got eaten by a T-Rex, but like these ones are good, you know, and, and, yeah. and, you know, and she's like struggling with it a little bit because she's just like, she, yeah, she calls them monsters. Yeah. 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 I've always tried um, to understand the significance of when he throws away his old fossil, right? Where he's in the tree right. and he's looking at it and he goes, he tosses it and you, and it, the camera obviously follows in. It's like, he's gotten rid of it. Like I've always tried to yeah. understood like. What does that represent for him? Is he give like because you say he's still doesn't matter? It doesn't matter. Fossils don't matter. Like they just they don't matter. Like like what what does it matter that I have this fossil of a raptor claw? Um, you know when raptors exist and they're alive now that it would be like. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it'd be the equivalent of like having a shark tooth, but like I don't know, you grow out of that as a kid. And also, it's like, you know, the, the, the one big scene that the raptor claws had is when he scares the shit out of that little boy. Also with that. It. Yeah. So it's twofold. And so when he. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he's like, I don't. I, I'm a dad now. <laughs> I don't need to <laughs> scare the shit out of some kid. <laughs> it's the only reason I have I did. this is to scare children. Yeah. So oh, he's, he's like. To respect dinosaurs. He's like getting away from. I guess that maybe is the sig- the signal for the change in his character like he's getting rid of yeah. the old version yeah. of himself yeah of himself mm-hmm. absolutely yeah cuz from that point on he is really in like protector paternal mode right uh we get the scene where uh, Hammond and and uh, Sadler have their scene with the ice cream melting and we learn about the flea circus mm-hmm. and Ellie kind of drills home what we've been talking about all episode which is like you know this isn't a show you're not this is real. This is science and evolution. This isn't like a flea circus. Right. Or, you know, like Walt Disney tried his hand at like creating an actual living, breathing community and city at some point. And that ended up kind of being like the one project that was too much for him to chew on. Or it, it didn't come to pass the way that he thought it would. 
Was that, is that Celebration and, Florida? Or like Epcot, right? Oh, Epcot. Epcot's supposed to be like a city. Yeah. So he, yeah. And then they tried, yeah, they tried to do an actual community here in mm-hmm. Florida and it didn't. And I think they're trying to do that again, to be honest. I don't know what they're calling it now, but. Right. I heard about that in the news. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but the next morning, Doctor Grant. Yeah, anyway, please. I, I was just gonna say, yeah, but the, oh. Disney's not even the ones building it. It's a, it's a whole, it's a scam. Right. It's a right, whole, right. Mm-hmm. like it's Jurassic just, Park. It's just JPEG wanting to make money on the on real estate. Anyway, continue. Right. Yes. Uh, the next morning, while traversing, they're making their way back to the communication center where they started the tour. Doctor Grant finds uh, a bunch of empty dinosaur eggs, and quickly, almost in Doctor Who like fashion. Remember, deduces that well, there are frogs that can switch genders, right? It stands to reason that since they use frog DNA, perhaps some of these dinosaurs are able to switch genders. Uh, uh, two dinosaurs made a connection, um, made some eggs, mm-hmm. life found a way, yeah. And it's it's something that I'm like, it's worth remembering because you know, we have a baby blue in the upcoming Jurassic world movie. And I think I myself have been like, well, how can they breed? And I forget like, Oh yeah, the frogs. Right. Oh yeah. They're frogs. Frog park. Yeah. You should have done a theme park of frogs. I would have paid to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like one Amphibia. notch above the flea, the flea circus. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, look, the frog, the frogs are on strings. Marionette frogs. Oh yeah, my yeah. God. They look so annoyed. They're like, I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're not even alive anymore. They're just like formaldehyde frogs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Uh, but no, this is like the most uh, Michael Crichton-y exposition if it wasn't for the theme park exposition scene. This is like him going, like, this is what it's like reading the book where it's like, well, you know, I've read this article about frogs and how oh, they switch yeah. genders. And, <laughs> you know, if we take that into consideration, the, they can probably, you know, during the season, they can switch to a male and reproduce. And it's like, okay, this is this is yeah. that book. <laughs> yeah. So the the old, the first draft was like mostly that. Scene. Yeah, Michael Crichton, his writing style it was like he didn't know what Cinema Sins was, but I think he saw it in the future coming, and it was like, no, right, I'm going to yeah. Cinema Sins proof my books and my writing, mm-hmm. um, and that's what that's everything. It's just like over explaining every minute detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this is kind of like Ellie's Ripley moment where she really takes command during the stretch of the movie. Yeah. Uh, the scientists fall into, okay, we're going to shut down the power and it's the nineties. So we're going to have to push all these buttons and you're going to have to literally crank a thing like a, like a lever. I love it. I love, I love the way it's edited too with, with Tim on the fence and like being scared to come down. Yeah. Oh my God. Cause you know, what's so brilliant about that sequence is it is just Spielberg messing with us. Yes. It's it's just for the audience. The characters have they have no idea they're interacting with each other. Yes, and it's just like uh, it's a real like you know the Hitchcockian like bomb under the table. Uh-huh. So good. It's yeah, superbly edited. Uh, and it always gets me the moment where like you know you think Tim's dead and then he's like three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. Three. It always gets me where he throws a stick at the fence. Like, what was that supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. Man, uh, then man, the scene where they get they make it into the the center and Lexi and Tim find the dessert table. Oh yeah, is it's so cathartic because these kids kind of got their their asses kicked. I just love how much Spielberg is like. Listen, if I know anything about kids, they love dessert. 
And so, like, Hook has that very memorable scene <laughs> of, like, yeah. the crazy desserts. And then and kids now love here. A, like, kids yeah. love a desserts. A plate full of jellos and <laughs> pies. And... But, like, yeah, that scene, again, it reminds you, like, going back to, like, it sold you on this theme park is when it does mm. the whole tree for my bed scene and they're talking about the flea circus and all that. And then it cuts back to the gift shop. All this merchandise that they had planned to sell. This dream that they had that's now in ruins. It was like, damn, do you remember 20 minutes ago when you thought that this would be the dream? Like, it's so (laughs) sad. And, like, all this dessert is out there. The cooler's not working. The ice cream is melting. Like, it's so symbolic of, like, this sucks. Like, I'm so heartbroken. There's that great shot of, you know, a couple scenes ago where Sadler and, and, and Hammond are having their scene. They zooms out and John is just surrounded by all of like the toys and the cutouts. And you're right. Like it means nothing now mm-hmm. because they're these basic things that he never thought to question that. Yeah. The scientists very quickly. There is a, uh, a another tidbit. So I did work at River Adventure, mm-hmm. which is working with the dinosaurs and we'd send the boats and sometimes accidents would happen. But anyways... I also worked at Thunder Falls, which is like the premier restaurant at Jurassic Park. And working in that kitchen, like, reminds me of this movie when they get into the kitchen. And then I'm like, whenever I was in that kitchen, I was like, oh, this is where it would happen. This is the cooler that I would have to go to. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the kitchen scene. What is there to say? Uh, Fantastic. Just a a master class. They give the Velociraptor a Spielberg (laughs) close-up. Hell yeah, they do. And it's it's magical. Yeah. And uh oh, okay, so speaking of, you know, you mentioned the throwaway moment about like, oh, Grant's daughter's getting a divorce. Uh when as Dr. Grant found finds the eggs, we get like almost I think it's ADR of Lexi being like, I'm not a nerd, I'm a hacker, I'm a computer hacker, I hack stuff. Yeah. And it's just like that's all you need. And then when you when uh, when Lexi sees the computer and she's like, I know this, it's like it yes, Windows yeah. two thousand, I know this. <laughs> it wouldn't even be Windows uh, 95 Windows, yet. Windows 95, Windows, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking it was called, like, I think she Linux. said, like, Unit, Unit, Linux. Is it Linux-based? Linux right? Yeah, I think it's Linux. So she's a real hacker. Yeah. Listeners, she's, let us know. She's using Linux. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's nonsense. I mean, nonsense. It's not nonsense. real computer <laughs> shit, you know. But it looked cool uh, back then. Yeah, it, it still did. looks cool now when and, she's clicking on the little buttons. Skipping ahead, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned, Scott, a while ago of the T-Rex being the hero dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And it kind of positions him as such when the, t- the T-Rex saves, technically saves the humans by eating all the raptors. And we get the hero shot of, like, you know, the banner falling right. when dinosaurs rule the earth. Yeah. Unbelievable. That sequence, what, I, what blows me away every time I hear about it. So... In the original, like the original, the way they, they, they like, you know, did animatics or storyboards or whatever, this that last sequence, the raptors mm-hmm. attack and it's the same thing where they're all like hanging on the bones and everything. But then the raptors end up getting like one of them gets stabbed by the ribs and another one gets uh, gets like impaled by like the, the T-Rex head like chomps on it, basically. And that's how wow, that's okay. how they get away. And Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg was just like, what if, you know, the T-Rex was so cool. What if we brought the T-Rex back? Literally, they're there the day they're shooting. 
And they're, Jeez, Louise. they're like, what if the T-Rex just came back? And they're like, but how would it get in the building? Or like, how would it get in here? And then yeah. Steven Spielberg <laughs> is like, well, see, so like, you know, the, you know, Tim's going to be over here and then the Raptor's going to come in and then the T-Rex is just going to come in and grab the Raptor. And they're like, he was talking about how the T-Rex would get into the movie. Not how it would get into the building. No, no. <laughs> no we're asking how it physically. Yeah. Died. Yeah. And so, and so they, they just like shot it and they did it in post and like the, they got that iconic shot of the T-Rex winning in the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that the second thing that you have to swallow of like, it physically could not, how could it get into that building? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think they, I think they open up. Like in post, I think they opened up like a window and turned it into like uh, an open doorway that he could have. Okay, she could have technically walked through um, a, a T Rex shaped hole in the wall. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, I, I literally think that's what they did to make it work. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's it's great though. It does have a. It has that similar. It has that movie problem, which is like I think it's a fun, stupid movie thing. But like you know, it gets. It gets pointed out a lot. The one that is pointed out a lot, a lot is in Dark Knight Rises when the Batwing shows up out of nowhere, where it's just like, it's completely silent. And then the Batwing is just like, just like there. And it's like, wait, (laughs) but it it flew there. Like, how didn't you not hear it coming? And it's the same thing with Mm -hmm. the T-Rex, where it's just like the T-Rex the whole time this movie, we're watching this movie, the T-Rex we know is on its way because everything is shaking. But for some reason, it's figured out how to soften its steps before just like attacking the raptor out of nowhere. Yeah. And like, like you're staring at the raptor. So like it's in the T-Rex is in the point of view of Tim. Like if I'm looking, (laughs) I see the T-Rex. So for yeah. it to eat the raptor, I would have to be like, oh, my God, a T-Rex. Like, where'd you come yeah. from? You just, like, <laughs> clipped mm-hmm. through the polygons, I guess, and came in here. Yeah. It's like, But that's what I love about, about Steven Spielberg as a director is, like, he has no concern for reality. He's like, no, mm-hmm. the reality is what's in the frame. Yeah. And so I'm going to tell you how the yes. T-Rex gets in the frame because yeah. that's all that matters. He knows he knows cinema. He knows the story he's been telling well enough that the audience isn't going to ask that question if he does his job right. Correct. Yes. Yeah. You know, they're not going to be like, wait, how did you? Because, you know, you've seen a bad movie before where it all is just like, what is even what? None of this. What's right. happening? Yeah. Right. Oh, so good. And save all the reality for Schindler's List. Go see that one. And then leave, <laughs> yeah. leave Jurassic Park to be what it is. You know, like, yeah, you can't do that. Uh, but so. So. This final scene in the helicopter, something I noticed, because, you know, it's kind of a kind of a chill shot for this movie. Final shot is they look out and they see a flock of birds flying. And I I would love to get both the y'all's interpretation, but it was almost like the movie was saying, oh, my God, like these scientists put all this money and all this effort and all these lives lost into bringing dinosaurs back to life so that we could see dinosaurs up close when they're right in front of us. Mm-hmm. It's true. Their descendants, the wonder of nature is right in front of us. It's just a flock of birds. And yet we do so little to take care of that or even notice that. Yeah. Which is yeah emulated in, or it's mirrored in Jurassic world. The way the movie starts is how this one ends. It's like, it's a bird. Like it's not right. a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. It's a bird. And you're like, Oh yeah, well technically it's a dinosaur. And I feel that same way, especially like people are always like, Oh, like, when that Jurassic Park discourse comes up, it's like, no, I don't 
I listen, I love Jurassic Park, I love dinosaurs and all that, but we don't need this to happen because when I have cranes in my front yard eating bird food, I'm out there staring at them and they come up right up to me and I can look at them and I look at it and I, and I was telling my dad, I was like, these are dinosaurs. And my dad just laughed. He's like, what do you mean they're dinosaurs? And I was like, because he doesn't understand that. I'm like, they still are the same dinosaurs. Like, I'm not joking about like, oh, they've evolved <laughs> into birds. It's like, technically, they still are dinosaurs. And you look at the feet, you look at the way they move and you're like, we still have dinosaurs today. So it's it's our ignorance that is keeping us from loving birds more. I'm really here to sell you on ornithology, so become bird <laughs> experts after this, right? So I I've I've been to an ostrich farm and I can confirm those things are dinosaurs. They're dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. And in Florida we have alligators what too, if- which is older than dinosaurs, and it's like that's a dinosaur. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's that'd be great if yeah, I I, I throw all of this, Spielberg just really wanted the 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 people of the nineties to just like appreciate birds. Yeah. Yeah. It ends on that shot of the birds and then it like it, it comes to black and it's like for more information on aviary. About- <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? On aviary confirmation. Here's this number directed by Steven Spielberg. But didn't this movie like this movie really sold like I wanted to be a paleontologist as a kid because of this movie. Oh yeah. And, oh, like, yeah. Then I'm watching every dinosaur documentary, walking with dinosaurs, all those things. Like anytime Sci-Fi Channel or, or Discovery Channel is putting a new dinosaur documentary, I was like, I have to after oh VHS gosh. record this and set my schedule because yeah, yeah. I'm not going to be there to see it. And it's like, yeah, I'm watching all of this them. movie did for paleontology what Top Gun did for the Navy and the Air <laughs> Force. Yeah, um, the only mm-hmm. difference is that anyone who wanted to sign up for the Navy and Air Force could after Top Gun. And uh, there's not that many paleontology jobs. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's very underpaying. Like um, my, my partner uh, went to school for um, archeology span and stuff like that. She specialized in examining human remains. Um, and to get a starting position as a paleontologist, was paying less than it paid to work at a theme park, which is why she ended up working at Jurassic Park because it paid more money to push a button to send people on a vehicle than it is to actually go work out there. And then we got, um, she got, you know, she's still enlisted in that program that says starting positions. And just a couple months ago, starting pay was like 1350 for a paleontologist. Like it wow. is bad. So then you understand why people stay in a service industry because right. mm-hmm. it pays a little bit more, not much, but it pays more and you can get in. If only quicker. there was a way to combine the service in- industry and paleontology into some sort <laughs> wow. of park. Yeah. Or <laughs> like, what if your partner could push a button and make people see real? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, uh, something else I wanted to bring up about Lex uh, being this hacker is, like, it's it's, mm-hmm. it's also hard to find movies that get you excited about hacking, right? Like, I'm hacking, like, I'm in type of thing. Like, I'm hacking in the mainframe. <laughs> this movie yeah. I can't think of- is, like, yeah, please. you're excited about this scene where she's clicking on the buttons and yeah. it's, like, starts working. She's, like, I got the, the, the mainframe is back on. Like, we're, the security <laughs> system is, like, it's so good. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's because at that point, computers and hacking were so it was kind of it was so unknown to most audiences, mm-hmm. whereas like I think now the the 
the romance is gone from mm-hmm. it of like jacking in like i'm in <laughs> of yeah. like i i would kill I, I can't remember the last time i saw a movie where someone said i'm in <laughs> probably um, a mission impossible movie most likely that's that's i kind point. of enjoyed it yeah it, it's weird because it's like sometimes they have to over romanticize it like if you look at Zack snyder's justice league and you see cyborg hacking it becomes this whole like artistic piece of him inside the right. symbolism of a bank and helping people but it's <laughs> almost a, the act of a deity, yeah right right of a god right. right yeah so um the uh that moment with her hacking um the planet as it were um <laughs> when she's like when she's in she's in it and she's like wait i know this this it, it's a mm-hmm. it's a sexist system i know this i'm like is doing the thing and it's just like i i i'm doing it it's it's working out it feels like the second half of a setup payoff it feels like a payoff to something <laughs> But there was never any setup for it other than that one ADR line that you mentioned, you know, Nick. It's true. But but it's not like a shotgun over the mantle type moment. It's a throwaway kind of thing, you know? God, I almost hate myself for for, for shooting this now. But you know what kind of it is the example of this? I think Spielberg may be doing this a little bit better is uh, 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 Jeff Goldblum's daughter getting cut from the gymnastics. Hell yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But but the thing that is interesting to me is just that it's that it's um that's my favorite line in maybe any Spielberg yeah, movie. Yeah. You're telling me mm-hmm. they cut you from the gymnastics team? <laughs> um <laughs> unbelievable line. Um but uh uh the, it's it is it's just very interesting because somehow Steven Spielberg directed this movie so well that he made a payoff without a setup. <laughs> and it's like yeah. how did he do that? It's like magic. I think <laughs> I think what helps make that work is Lexi has been kind of the brunt of the joke for a lot of the movie. Oh, true. Yeah. Like she gets snotted on. She doesn't like dinosaurs. She's a vegetarian. And so it's such a kind move to give her like this hero moment at the end of the movie. (laughs) It's her running in heels moment. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Ah, It's where it's like you've been wanting this character to get a win, period. That's true. And that's like. Oh, cool. Lexi gets to. It probably goes to show that, like, we're not like we're as a storyteller, you're like, we're not saying that technology is bad. It's those who use it. And so that's the same seat Nedry was sitting in and chose to do something awful. John Hammond has taken technology, done something awful. And you have Lex who can use the same technology for good. And it's representing it's the person behind it that chooses. Man. Man, I really wish they had brought back Lex and Tim for Dominion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they did officially uh, say that they definitely have not, right? I haven't I haven't done that much okay. like research. I know they show up again in Lost World, but it's like basically a cameo. Is it both of them or just one of them? Both of them. I think it is both of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, he goes, kids. I literally kids. haven't watched The Lost World in probably, I would say probably twenty years. Wow. Um, and and I'll be and here's here's my here's my big thing. Okay. I don't think I've ever watched Jurassic Park three all the way through. Like I've seen parts of it, ah. but I don't think mm-hmm. I've seen I've ever seen the whole thing. I don't think you've seen enough. Yeah. I I, I oh I will say. Uh, so I love this movie to pieces, but one thing that will never, never stop annoying the shit out of me is when 
is when Hammond says, uh, you know, not everything worked when Disneyland opened in 1956. I'm like, it opened in 1955. Like, I, 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 <laughs> it blows me away that no one could catch that. Um, anyway. That's funny. <laughs> and a, if he was a real scientist. <laughs> yeah. He would know when Disneyland opened. If he was a real entertainer. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, that line that Malcolm says where he's like, yeah, but John, when the Pirates of the Caribbean come to life, they don't eat the, you know. Yeah. It's, that line always trips me out because I'm like, wow, that is years before the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. He's just talking about the ride. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's also, I think, a funny, uh, kind of a funny, probably unintentional reference to Westworld. Oh, that's oh, true. Yeah. yeah, look at that. <laughs> yeah. To... Can you imagine that if they came to life and started attacking the park goers? How crazy that would be. Yeah, that'd be oh, wild. <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, uh, that's Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh hopefully hopefully westworld makes jurassic park canon oh yeah the show that would be like yeah like they're in the same universe yeah yeah that'd be very strange uh, well, <laughs> mark thank you so much for joining us you were such a such an incredible guest we loved hearing about uh how crazy the park is in real life yes it can be you know safety is a big thing at jurassic park always is Always has been. Yep. Right? So. Um, <laughs> I'm picturing like someone watching a training video at Jurassic World. So here at Jurassic World, safety's always been our number one priority and always has been. That's Jurassic Park for you. <laughs> well, uh, you know, if you're listening to this and you have an opportunity to clone dinosaurs, just don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. Bad idea. Anyway. Big no-no. All right. Um, Mark, do you have anything going on you want to plug right now? Um, yeah, just become a Patreon subscriber for Dueling Genre if you're not already, because I'm on there a lot talking about all kinds of pop culture stuff. And I talk a lot about DC comics stuff. So I do a couple DC podcasts called DC Cinematic Minute and Doom Patrol Radio. But then I'm also uh, helping Nick with his uh, uh, Patreon bonus content where he's talking about Teen Titans. So check that out as well. Yeah. Because that show's awesome. Yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Duelinggenre.com slash support. Uh, thanks, everyone, who is a Patreon supporter. And uh, if you missed us during the hiatus, that's what we were doing. Um, we were just doing Patreon content uh, all summer yep. long. So you could have been listening to us this whole time. Anyway. Joke's yeah. on you. Joke's on you. <laughs> Suckers. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be back next week with The Lost World. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.